Welcome to Lost Link, the podcast with Muff Barber and Yogi Nickerson, where CL data is disabled and no topic is off limits about unmanned aircraft or the United States Air Force. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not represent the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or any other federal agency. This podcast contains some profane language and is not suitable for all audiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a dude named Dan Carlin. He's a uh, big podcaster, like doing history stuff, and he researches exceptionally well. He will do six or seven episodes on one subject, where each episode wow. is like five to six hours of recording. Um, his latest one was all about this thing called the supernova in the east, and that is the the Japanese mm. uh, leading into World War II, and just how about Japanese culture and uh, the way they looked at war and the way they executed yeah. the war and things like that and it was, it was pretty damn incredible, and I don't have the stamina for thirty-six hours of single-subject podcast uh, recording. So, well, let alone a hundred and something hours of research, no doubt, to be ready to present. Yeah, and then his, you know, editing and whatever else he's got to do after the fact. Like, whew, he only releases like once every six months or something like that. So, yeah, it's, no doubt, uh, it's it's worthwhile. Um, Seems like a know. modern like democratization of the college lecture or something. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this guy's been ta- asked to like, go to like CENTCOM conferences and uh, things like that because dudes down there will listen to his podcast. But uh, we're not here to talk about his podcast today. <laughs> so, no, just let, it be, just let it be known that Muff doesn't have the stamina. That's the takeaway here. <laughs> yeah. Um, it could be a lot of that too. So, uh, Yogi, uh, once, once again, uh, we're Lost Link. Um, as the airplane flies back uh, to the last six and we wait on that uh, contact to plug us back in, um, we're lucky to have uh, Major Mike Burns, PhD, uh, here with us on the first guest podcast, uh, or guest on the Lost Link podcast. Uh, Mike, say hello. Hello. Yeah, well done. <laughs> um, Mike uh, is currently an instructor and evaluator uh, and is assigned to the 54th OSS uh, here at Holloman Air Force Base. Where did you get your PhD in? Or uh, not what, like what school? It was at uh, the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Tufts, that's right. Um, so he's got a PhD in? International Relations. Excellent. I should have asked, uh, uh, done some research on that beforehand, but eh, why bother? I've got it right from the horse's mouth. Um, prior to that, so he went to attend Tufts as a, a selectee for the Chief of Staff of the Air Force's prestigious PhD program. And uh, prestigious it is. Um, prior to that, he was uh, an instructor and evaluator here at Holloman, right? Yep. And then you went there and then came back. Uh, and that's where I met Mike UPCS down here in 2013. Yep. yep. And uh, Mike was a grumpy, oh, uh, very upset kind of guy who did not want to be at Holloman. But uh, <laughs> slowly over time, he figured out that it was a pretty all right place and it allowed him to get into uh, some of the... Uh, other things, uh, other realms of the Air Force that he is now largely known for, um, part of which 
Uh, well, Mike is the author of a series in the Air and Space Power Journal called Nightfall. Uh, something of a seminary moment for many people who have read that uh, and saw kind of a bigger light of what the uh, 18X community and what RPAs uh, really could be or might be in the future. So we'll get into that. Um, prior to going to Holloman, Mike, you were at the 17th, is that right? Uh, is it 18th? And then uh, we stood up the 22nd uh, as the detachment out of the 17th. Gotcha. Um, and then prior to that, uh, Mike was an enlisted avionics technician. Uh, that was what, four years? Did you do uh, all four years or did you get picked years. up sooner? Uh, it was right uh, after 9 11 for two yeah. and a half years and then went to USAF after that. Yeah, and Mike is a, a 2008 graduate of uh, the United States Air Force Academy. So uh, welcome, uh, Mike. We're happy to have you here. Thanks. Honored to be here. Um, as I said, uh, from my perspective, Mike Burns, uh, you actually made your name with the Nightfall series. That was when I was first like, oh, <laughs> shit. Um, this dude's not just oh. the the, lo- the guy wearing the lone wolf patch uh, and taking that to heart um, as he was. You published that in uh, 2014. Is yep. that correct? That is. All right. That was the first one. When did the second episode or uh, episode? Yeah. Second piece was in 2015. Okay. Um, we'll get into that. Um no, so when I was at grad school coming out of the academy 2012-2014, um, I read your article not knowing anything about you, but I knew I was writing about RPA stuff, uh, which we'll not get into here. But uh, I read your article, and I found it uh, on a personal level. It was, it was inspiring that like there were smart people in the Air Force, and people were writing fun, well, not fun, but like adventurous and intellectually... Uh, challenging material and we're getting recognition for that and uh, it was a big moment for me as well so he's talking about it was a seminal moment for some people I I definitely think about your nightfall article as being like oh there actually is maybe room for this in the Air Force and people can do this and it was kind of inspiring actually not to butter you up too much (laughs) yeah yeah. I'm uh, glad you found it helpful in retrospect, I wouldn't call it the most scholarly thing ever, but at the time no, no, with, the, no. with the training that I had, that was yeah. kind of what we did. Um, took, you know, years later when you go through rigorous social science programs to understand what does it take to go from suspecting something, and you might very well be right, to actually being able to empirically prove it. Uh, and that was, you know, not the not the uh, level of training I had at the time, but it was sort of one of those things where you feel like, you've got something that needs to be said and you feel driven to write it down and then bring it to your peers and see if, uh, what they think of it and how they would, you know, give you some feedback on it. You blew the doors off everybody, uh, with those articles. Like I think to include like squadron commanders and dudes that have been around and for, you know, in the community for 10 years, but had been flying something else prior to that. So their model was based on something entirely different. And, uh, I think you opened some people's eyes in that case uh, and blew, blew them away. It was an interesting um, sequence of, of events once that article got published. At first, I just submitted it to the Aerospace Power Journal. They didn't say much of anything. Then I found out that was because they were had a backlog of stuff, and so uh, the holidays came and went, and then they finally got it out there. Um, but the first thing that was really interesting that happened was uh, Tom Ricks from Foreign Policy Magazine at the time. Oh yeah, he's the author he, of he's yeah. the author of uh, what's the the book about how to make Marines? Uh, yeah, he had a number of of interesting pieces. He worked defense for a real long time, 
Um, and he had picked it up and said that he really enjoyed it. And I thought, well, that's weird. I just wrote this to slap the Air Force uh, yeah. really, really hard. Yeah. Uh, I was really just trying to, uh, to punch, it in the, punch it in the culture uh, and say, wake yeah. up. Uh, I wasn't really counting on the fact. I didn't think anybody read outside of the institution. I just assumed it was us in our little corner talking to yeah. ourselves as airmen. So what was, when you were talking about the, the, the germination of this idea, the inkling that you had when it was first percolating, so what was that impetus? And then uh, what did it grow into when you ultimately published it? Like were you sitting in a GCS, like in a dark room on a, on a mids tour, be like, hmm, I could, I, I might be able to write <laughs> something about this. It, you know, people need to know some more about this. Or was it, you know, you know, like, yeah, what was the the motivation? Yeah, so there's, uh, I think, a range of, of thoughts that went into it. Um, some of them are more noble than others. Some of them are, hey, we want to think about what is the envelope of this technology? What are we doing? Okay, if I, if I do it remotely versus if I tell the robot to do something on its own, what's the scope of that? Uh, and maybe some of the logic of it, like the cold logic of it came from just the notion of going between modes that were pre-programmed and modes that were manually actuated and realizing, well, what if both of these could be more sophisticated? Like what if there were a tactical autopilot that did most of this stuff for us? Could I be able to zoom out and be able to control four vehicles at once? And like all those kinds of things. And people had explored that, you know, with the the multi-aircraft control, the Max thing back in the day. Uh, unfortunately, oh, that, I, I had flown the Mac. <laughs> flown the, the, Max, the Mac was oh, I remember walking past great. Yeah. Um, really, just like a KVM of four. Yeah, KVM of four yeah. airplanes, and there yeah. were sensor operators in the back, literally, you know, yeah. swapping tapes uh, yeah. to record stuff. No DVRs. It said it was a very yeah. poor man's way of doing multi-ship yeah. control because you were only controlling one at a time. Um, we've I've mentioned before, like a Starcraft like interface yeah. where I'm just, I'm looking at the tracks and I'm hooking them and selecting them and telling them to go do things and they're off doing, doing their thing. So that yeah. sounds like what you're talking about. Yeah. And I was thinking about that in terms of, and we'd done it in a, a, one of the classes I had at Carnegie Mellon during the master's work was, uh, over a, it was interface design and it was just a half semester course for executives. It was not supposed to be the ultimate full thing. Like the textbook they had us just take a few pages out. It was over a thousand pages. So there are people who do incredible work. UX and, and interface design and that kind of stuff. So um, they had, as I did my little tiny half semester project, I said they had you start through a process to figure out, okay, go make a thing for a customer use case. So of course, I went to our, you know, uh, GCS uh, nightmare that we have of, uh, of cheap, dirty automation, and then tried to figure out how could you do this cleaner, even just if you're going to do the same basic task. Is this your master's? It was. Carnegie Mellon? Yep. Did you say? All right. Um, so that some of that was the impetus of, of thinking about why I was trying to understand what's the role of the robots and what's the role of the, of the humans and how are they linked together, uh, beyond just, you know, a controls B over KU link or whatever, uh, how does this actually come together in a, in a more interesting way? Because those things, like when you say the max is this awful control design, what it tells you is there's no fundamental theory of operation or fundamental theory of warfighting, what we might call a concept of employment or CONAP. There was no CONAP for the Max. It was just built and an engineer met a list of requirements. There's hardly a, there's hardly a CONAP for the GCSs that we have, right? <laughs> like, know, right? Why why am I still flying an engineer's test station uh, unknown. 25 years after they created this airplane? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and why has the Air Force not figured out on both its inhabited and remotely occupied 
uh, systems, how has it not figured out a Mark One or maybe three variants of cockpit so that it can cut its human capital and its training build requirement? Mm-hmm. Because once you teach people a cockpit design or maybe two or three total in your fleet, turns out it's really a very simple differences training on the performance of the, the air vehicle, but it is not um, you know, a, a giant trauma to completely relearn where all the switches are. So uh, anyway, so all of that to say that as this, uh, putting this article together, I was thinking about that relationship between humans and machines. And I realized that part of the Air Force had essentially invested itself entirely on having that connection be human inhabited. Um, basically everything that we've, we've has the dominant view of, of tactical aviation from the 19 late seventies on, yeah. uh, was all to do it in fighter force packaging. Um, that's always the answer. The human needs to be up there at the front. And I asked, well, why would there be an environment that is so unbelievably deadly that no human would survive it? Is there such a space conceptually? If so, what would it look like? And then as I started to survey a lot of the, the technology on the market and particularly one influential piece was Scooter McGrew's. Um, work when he was an MIT student in the Raven Lab at MIT. Um, he basically had done what he called approximate neurodynamic programming. It was one of the techniques that he used to teach two balsa wood gliders that have little motors on them. Uh, and instead of the idea here is that to let the students get through, finish their project, test the thing they really want to test and not spend forever building an aero vehicle or a model of it. So they keep the air vehicle simple, but they do all the, the horsepower, the fun part. The part that matters is all the rack of computers in the lab. So the real part that they're really testing is the software. The gliders are used for lots and lots of little projects. So what Scooter had done with this, uh, he was a former Eagle guy, is he basically taught it the, the most basic BFM that you would teach a lieutenant uh, to do maybe in an IFF class or something like that. And so as I looked at this, I said, you just taught them how to solve this in about three passes and it kept improving its solution. Uh, and said, well, what happens if you start aggregating all the things, just like when you teach a human to put these building blocks together, um, it's possible. Maybe there's some limit where there's a repertoire that just creatively choosing from the repertoire, maybe the machine interprets it very mechanically, whereas the human tends to vary their choices more erratically. Um, but okay, but that you can capture as a variable, uh, about, you know, prediction efficacy. So, Actually, I'm having a harder and harder time figuring out why does the silicon computer um, not necessarily match the organic computer for the task we specified. So that's not to make some you know over-the-top claim for artificial general intelligence or whatever. That's just to say uh, this range of tasks that we're treating as artistic and so inherently human that nobody could ever possibly duplicate it. Um, I'm not sure that that's actually true of this particular task. I think it's more algorithmic than we give it credit for. That, that task being flying? Yep. Yeah. yeah. We're flying and, and doing particular sets of maneuvers. Um, and I later, you know, chatted with a colleague uh, out at the weapons school, and he said, you know, one of the most disturbing things is he thought about this article years later, too. And he's a computer scientist by trade, another academy guy, 09. Who's that? Uh, Diesel Katev. <laughs> so we're sitting there in the 26 bar. Anytime here. Computer science. I'm like, who is that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, you know this guy. Uh, so these and I are sitting and chatting. He said, <laughs> no, right. One of the, the challenges that he, um, he said is he said, we, we teach people often to have, see a setup, do a thing, see a setup, do a thing. And as a computer scientist himself, he had a hard time, uh, you know, imagining how in the world you would not say that it was algorithmic. So that was kind of the, the challenge I think that he ran into was, 
was saying, you know, I've got a one part of my, my fighter pilot brain says, <laughs> this is an art form and I know it because I can feel it and I've done it. Uh, and then the other part says, well, but not if this is what we're teaching, then maybe, maybe not. So that was part of the uh, discussion there. So I've had a lot of thought, uh, you know, in the, I don't know, driving to work and in the, you know, recess of hanging out, uh, you know, with my wife and this and that, uh, that human beings are really, we're all just Bayesian, like logic machines. <laughs> it right? seems like it sometimes, huh? So in, in the sense that like, we're going to have one opinion and whether it's yeah. about COVID vaccines or it's about like, should I turn left right here or yeah. right, right here? Like it's the more I experience, yeah. the more I can start to lean in one direction. And when yeah. that input like tells me, this is, it triggers this pathway in my brain. That's what I'm going yeah. to do and how I'm going to respond. Right. Um, and I think that like most people that, for instance, like are surrounding the COVID vaccine. Sure. Most people that are like very anti vaccine. It is largely a result of the, the types of people that they're hanging out with and the people yeah. they spend their time around and just the, the, the culture of their little particular bubble of American society. Right. Yeah. Um, because all those inputs that they're getting, are telling their Bayesian, you know, you know, lizard brain in the back yeah. that like this is how you're going to respond to this yeah. thing. That's the pathway that they build. Um, but it's the same with spam, email, and everything else. Like we're all just Bayesian learning machines for the most part. Yeah. Uh, and so there's some interesting like bounds on that too. Thinking about is the you know is Bayes' model for for integrating prior probabilities, um, the the one that you're using all the time. And I don't know, like, I think, let's think the other bounding condition would be like how Kahneman and Tversky teach us how we neglect prior probabilities yeah. when we're assessing a problem that we formally <laughs> sit down to read and uh, find out like, wait a minute, you, you neglected the prior probability in the first part of the word problem or, or whatever. So um, anyway, that's, that's probably, I think, yeah, where we're, um, you're right. Like there's, there's a sense in which organic computers are doing something in the universe it's not entirely fair to say that they are the only devices that can do that and none other can ever exist. That doesn't seem to be a good, uh, theological, or excuse me, theological, but like a theoretical argument or an ontological argument. Uh, it'd be tough to, to say never. So you're saying AIs and computers can potentially outperform human pilots in various tasks. And, uh, right now we should probably just, I'm of the opinion we should like start working them into the, the subroutines, like all the little small things yeah. that we do that are just kind of nuisance work, you know, station keeping, yeah, uh, et cetera. And then slowly that will grow into, yeah. So maybe like the taking way on the higher tactical level. Yeah. Maybe things. the way to look at it for thinking about ranges of machine tasks or people started off with this idea of the dull, dirty and dangerous. Right. Um, but that was about, the dangerous that they had in mind was just that the machine would go places to take risks that would be less appropriate for human or less desirable for a human. We don't want to risk the investment in that particular human, et cetera. Uh, so, so trying to take over some stand in strike roles, uh, in politically denied or, you know, technologically denied environments or de degraded environments or what have you. Uh, that's all they meant by dangerous. So, and the dull was pretty straightforward and the, the dirty, you could have some interpretations on that, but uh, the the one we forgot was was deadly. What if the performance requirements are so high and so competitive, and they are in a machine optimized or machine advantaged area, that um, it is no longer appropriate for humans to be there? So that looping background to 
what was this impetus nightfall was to figure out was there a conceptual space for that um the weird and interesting part was after so the tom ricks had looked at a lot of the stuff got into some discussions with him and then i got this random call while i was sitting at your old desk uh in the 29th as the exec uh i think it was still maybe still snackoing for for gizmo at the time while execing that was fun uh so um i got to a point where uh the i got this call from on that phone from uh one of the people who's the director of tactical technology office at darpa <laughs> what <laughs> uh, how did you get this number right uh, yes is this mike burns <laughs> yeah that's exactly uh, what it was it was so random and i'm like uh sure so they invite us to go out and do a tdy go out there i'm gonna say well what, what do you want i need no guidance no nothing uh, i'm like well, should i build slides and like sure do whatever and like you can't just walk into darpa with no plan that's yeah. ridiculous <laughs> so i build a slide deck and just talking about a little bit about culture and technology um, and then put that out there. We walked through a brief. It was really informative. And that was the time, uh, first time I met, uh, Basket Cunningham when he was, um, an 06 and the senior operational DARPA liaison. Um, he was super awesome. He, after we had that brief, uh, took, I think probably three hours of, of providing feedback with him, the USAF crew that was out there, uh, representing the Air Force at DARPA. And uh, we had like a long series of conversations. A lot of them were about like, how do you convey, like if you're onto something right, how do you persuade people who are going to be inherently resistant or hostile to such argument? Um, he also taught me a lot about, hey man, I can tell you're an instructor uh, at something right now because that brief seemed like you had the pens. <laughs> okay, is that bad? He's like, well, no, you just, you're, now you're talking to a room full of, of experts at such a diverse round, you know, range and field. You know, it was a different brief. So I, all I have to say, I think that uh, then Colonel Cunningham's uh, mentorship and guidance was, was super awesome. Uh, and he did not have to spend that kind of three hours. So Is that Case little... Cunningham? Yep, that one. Uh, okay. Yep. Uh, subsequently on to be the 432nd Wing Commander. That's that's when he told me right there. He said, oh, yeah, I'm going out to be the creature to be the Wing Commander. I'm like, nice. well, congrats, sir. You're going to have your hands full. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, and so he had read your Nightfall article yeah. and... Uh, somebody decided to reach out and get you over to DARPA for, yeah, for a hot a, minute. Yeah. A random uh, morning brief. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that, uh, sort of, I think there were a couple of interesting characters I met there. You might see in the news periodically, JC Leday and a couple other folks, and you see their names recur as you start to pull up all the dark, our dark articles about autonomy. Um, and as you got to the, what was this last year, just this past year, the alpha dog fight trials. So the really funny thing is the, the little Huron, robot essentially did exactly what fqx notional airplane in the written article was was built to do uh that, that thing won 5-0 right right uh, uh against, you, a, against a, 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 a manned guy right and a, yeah. a guard black border patch because i mean this is almost like the imagine you're the guy who's asked to do this i'd be um, like oh fuck <laughs> right this is like the hey would you get in a fist fight with your grandmother like it doesn't matter what you do you lose right yeah, yeah. like so you win you lose you lose you lose like and it was it's interesting i could imagine the the dynamics of recruiting someone to do that on the public stage would be a yeah, little and, bit challenging. And if you're cognizant of like how <laughs> competent computers that. are, uh, like if you go into that with all, task, you're just yeah. like, oh, Jesus, yeah. I'm going to get wrecked. And here I am, the guy who yeah. has volunteered to be basically the guy who puts the death or puts the last nail in the coffin for, yeah. <laughs> for fighters. Great. I can't yeah. wait. Well, and it's interesting to do because it, in any real talking, if you were really specking out a warplane, where DFUX deviates from reality on purpose was why would you go after the short range fight? 
And it was really, it's, that is about doing a tech demo, which is essentially what the Huron and its, you know, competitive offerings from different vendors were after was, it was answering the one question. The one thing that the human said was so artistic that if, if all else failed, yep, you might say they'd be on visual range, got a little algorithmic, but there's still creativity there. But we could figure out what can and can't be replicated and we can figure out where the right role of the human is. That could be negotiated, but the sort of uh, illusory, like hand grip on the rock climbing route was, well, but if it gets to the merge, then I, human, I'm the only one who can solve this. And the whole point of the article was to absolutely put the crosshairs on that thought and open fire mm -hmm. to say, look, and this is the point, I think, as you start to do these kinds of writings. Oh, your article, Nightfall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of trying to get out of, you go beyond advocacy pieces and try to get to scholarly material. Um, the goal is never to like argue just one side and say, this is truth and I want to fight you over it and here's my article now, now counter. You do want the, that's what the editors of journals want. They want the, everyone to bring their different contested views such that you end up with a rich discussion. And that's what academia is really trying to do. The, that's why the consummate college professor doesn't really care what your argument is. He or she cares how you formulate that argument. Because if we can get that process right, then I, we're going to find better conclusions about everything, no matter what question comes up in the future. So that's, that's where I think people would look at that and say, hey, you're taking a swipe at the fighter guys. And I said, no, I'm taking a swipe at a thought that you're holding that I don't think is valid and I want you to revisit. Yeah. And that is not inconsistent with the brief execute debrief, or should I say plan brief execute debrief kind of culture to say, here's my debrief point to you. I think you're invalid on this. Challenge me and push back, please. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to do with these kinds of articles. Yeah, so what, what was the if we can get a little more specific within nightfall, what was the, the challenge that you threw down? Uh, it was specifically that idea that uh, there was something that was too artistic about air to air combat that could never be emulated, replicated or improved upon most importantly uh, by a machine with a, a various, you know, inferentially learned approaches. So, uh, and I, I think having seen where scooters research was, in the journal of, I think, control and guidance systems or something like that. I mean, it's very technical. Those are very first-rate type things. It's a very good spot for him. Uh, and I think he later got hired out after he left the Air Force into the Phantom Works. You can imagine what he might be doing uh, and see uh, who's building what these days and imagine where scooters work might have gone. Yeah, it's probably parked at Tonopah or something like that. Who knows, <laughs> right? So he's, he's up to something there, right? Um, but it, it basically gave me this this thought that I like, I think the pieces are all on the board. And what I'm seeing is I suspect we have an institution that for cultural reasons does not want those pieces put together. So what's the most interesting thing to do? We talked about the range of motivations for writing articles. So that the scholarly parts I've said are the probably the good parts. The, uh, I'm just being a, a jerk, uh, cause, cause humans are humans and I'm no better, uh, was I'm dissatisfied with these, uh, these orders to Holloman, as you said in the intro there, uh, when we first met, I was, I was sort of annoyed. Uh, I think the FTU was seen as a kind of B rate assignment. It just looked like, oh, you just want to break or you just want to make bodies for us. And I didn't like that answer. Part I said, particularly no, I, at that time. Yeah. I, that, I think that's what it was. What I didn't understand was the commanders at the time were trying to fix that. Um, so they said, no, I, I'm trying to actually fill the place up with people that we put in instructor programs and actually had enough confidence in. Um, but then I just looked at the map of Alamogordo and went, oh no. <laughs> so, anyway, but anyway, when, when Jennifer and I pulled in here for the first time, like I got orders to New Mexico and <laughs> she was living in my house. I was like, all right, so 
I guess we're getting married. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I brought her down here. We got married on November 18th and we PCS down here like by the end of that month. Oh, you were and, a winter move too. You oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, we pulled into the north side of town right here by Scenic and she saw oh, the, yeah. the home or the Lowe's and the Home Depot and she started crying because she knew oh, that was goodness. the edge of town. And she was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. Yeah. Because she had just spent, you know, 20 years living in Vegas. Oh, yeah. She considered herself a Vegas girl. Yeah. Well, you, I've heard the story replicated uh, from other uh, families. Uh, it's almost identical. It's just at different points when they got here. Uh, I think for, uh, wasn't maybe Rick Hansen who went off to, to Herbie you know, some years ago, but he, uh, he'd said similar story when we were in the IG working for the wing down here, uh, maybe 2015. He said, yep, we, I got to the base and she said, so how much further till we get there? He said, Nope, this is, it. <laughs> and it was a sort of a surprise, right? That, uh, Oh, Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I think this, honestly, this town's grown and grown up a lot over the years. Uh, and maybe I've, my perspective on it has changed where I didn't want to be in Vegas and I don't want to be in Vegas traffic anymore. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was pretty happy with it, but all that to say, yeah, that was the, the, the move down here when you and I, you know, first met. Uh, part of it was I was annoyed that the Air Force figured, hey, you're expendable to go make bodies. Like, oh, really? You think it's about making more humans? Let me show you what a robot might do and then tell me how many humans you want. Yeah. So there's this sort of just impish, frustrated, uh, angsty captain. I'm gonna, I need to punch somebody in the face right now and I can't find the face of the institution and it turns out it's no one person and I wouldn't be like, nobody actually did anything bad to deserve it. So I need to punch the anonymous bureaucracy somehow, take an article to the face. Why don't you? <laughs> so, so there's, there's no doubt. I would not even pretend that that was not part of my equation of why I was furiously typing on a sure. poor Microsoft word got beat up. So you're taking aim at, you're taking aim at this, uh, this idea that there's something ineffable or artistic about, being a pilot that means that only those people can basically compete or complete right. tasks at the highest level of combat. I mean, combat is what we're, we're yeah. really talking about. Um, what were with these punches you were throwing at the at the uh, this in, this uh, this idea? What were the conclusions or what were the punches that that you landed? Or I guess in the yeah. end, uh, with with that article. So I think it got some discussion going and who knows, we can't see the alternate timeline with the counterfactual, right? To figure out what was, uh, how would things have been different without that? Would DARPA basically have done all the same things? Probably, I would assume. Um, what discussion would that, did that cause in what circles? Unknown. Um, would other authors have basically came to the same conclusion? Somebody else would have done something very similar? Probably, I, I don't know. Uh, so it's hard to say, like, how do you totally measure impact of, of an article, but, um, yeah, I guess maybe not so much impact, but just conclusions that you like yeah. the conclusions of that article for you. And like, I, what did, what did you end with in your discussion? Of yeah. That? So I think what it closed in on there was, look, all the pieces are on the board. Uh, and this, I didn't understand the terms I'd never been trained on or never got to study the concept of technological constructivism. Uh, which we can unpack a little bit too, but it's essentially what was, was going on. I just didn't know the words at the time to say you air force institution don't want this, but I'm telling you right now, somebody else is going to figure it out. And if they figure it out before you, if it's allied or it's uh, joint, right. 
you may find yourself, what if the Navy takes the lead? I think was one of the, the thoughts in there. And uh, wh- how would we... That might be the worst thing. <laughs> right? Uh, and then you're What's great to... about the Navy is they don't care about aviation. It's all about <laughs> I, defending I the... certainly a contingent of them do, but the branch yeah, identity thing is but what But it's about defending the ship, right? And so, yes. you know, the aviators get to go off and kind of loosey-goosey yeah. with a little less oversight and a little less... Like, yeah, all right, man, just... just yeah, all right, you go to Point Magoo... <laughs> Do your thing. Let us know when you're done. Yeah. You know well, what I mean? Think they think it's more serious than that, I would imagine. But yes. If we follow them around, we'd yes. see a little yes. more intensity. But, but the, the Air Force <laughs> is so up its own ass about aviation uh, because yeah. that's what we do professionally, right? Yeah. So we, we microscope on the, that whole idea. And there's less, there's sometimes feels that there's less room to deviate from the, yeah. the cultural norm, right? And the Navy is like, oh. Well, it's, it's all right, go nuts. I need a, a sacred cow. Yeah, yeah. And the Navy's like, I need a tanker. Uh, can we get that unmanned? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, apparently we can. Okay, cool. Let's do that. Whoop. They even have, I mean, I'd put it this way. So branch identity lets um, organizations like Navy and Army, who have historically been that way, to behave a little more like multi-party systems if it was a political system and it is uh you have multiple parties in there who have a significant amount of distributed power mm-hmm. there's no one branch that completely dominates every discussion every single time there's some give and take and same story with with combat arms in the army talk about like so infantry versus artillery versus you know uh helicopters yep, exactly. and how, like they all get to identity. compete together uh yeah. Because they all work towards a, a similar goal. Yep. And, and it's, each one has a niche interconnected role in the battlefield. Yeah. And they understand that, like, you can argue back and forth, and it's fine to have friendly sibling rivalries, but actually all the forces integrated is what causes us to, to succeed. Uh, and armies built their branches that way. Navy's got the same idea of, of how they build out, you know, various branches within the service. Uh, it's not really until this, what, past year and a half, year two, that we've actually gone into what we call different developmental categories yeah. Um, but that was, that's a separate story about how that all came to pass. But the, but you're asking down about the conclusions of what do we get there was essentially that I've got an organization that does not want this to come to pass, but somebody will have a different culture that will not have that barrier to entry. And then they're going to have the thing. Now the question was, are you going to end up buying Navy hardware because you're told by the DOD, you have no choice. And because you're so far behind on your own unmanned research program, um, or is the, PLA Air Force going to hand you the lesson uh, <laughs> to that they've got a smarter way to deploy force. Yeah. So you're saying there's, so there's a prisoner's dilemma where someone's going to force our hand, right? We can't just exist in our current technological status quo, right? Yeah, if you um, mean that by prisoner's dilemma, like that somebody will defect from yeah. from a somebody will reach for robots and take advantage. Yeah, and we'll I be suppose. forced into it whether we okay. want to or not, right? And so we might as well just embrace yeah. it. But it seems like maybe it was beyond, not beyond, but like Nightfall got to that point of it's our culture that's getting in the way in the Air Force, right? Yeah. Uh, and so subsequently, I'm sure you've had plenty of thoughts about like what that nut is, like what's actually going on yeah. in the culture and why there's a resistance to that. Uh, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that and what 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 is happening, why there's a resistance. Because we could talk about all kinds sure. of things, all evidence of the MQ-9 Um kind of being a second-class citizen in the Air Force, I think is something we talked about uh, on the podcast a couple episodes ago. Uh, you could talk about, like, the, yeah, the yeah. R device being, <laughs> like, the R device being kind of an uphanded insult. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, some, you know, and things like that, right? Uh, the way that combat hours get dished out or whatever, yeah. right? Um, 
what's going on culturally in your opinion and can that be fixed or will it be fixed or can it be fixed? Yeah. So culture is an interesting deal. If I think Edgar Schein may be one of those uh, kind of go-to references if you're trying to find a first book to dig, dig into and get some good definitions of it. He refers to like the DNA or the software of the organization. Um, what book is that? You said Edgar uh, Schein, Edgar the Dan's, author. Uh, I think uh, organizational culture and leadership is probably one of the, he's got a long list of them, but he's uh, sort of the, I think one of the biggest names in, in talking culture from the business literature. Um, and certainly there's lots of others, John Cotter, there's plenty of, of other books you I can go to, books. but <laughs> uh, by business, I do mean like the Academy of Management, like the formal, that type of, of, uh, uh stuff rather than like maybe amateur hour business, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. Okay. So, uh, so things about culture. So first, uh, piece of this was I, as wrapping up nightfall, actually, as I passed the draft around, uh, I passed one copy to a guy named nerd Wilson, who's in the 867th time. And he's now, he went to the guard afterwards, worked NGBA five. And now he is, um, uh, with general atomics as a director. Um, and so he had taught me something called the Washington post test. So the first draft of that, or one of the early drafts, the picture that was shown of, you know, which one and one of these countries, fifth gen fighters getting targeted by a robot, uh, that had placed its crosshairs to spend one round to eliminate the engine or whatever else to force the jet down and win the fight, uh, saying, you know, this guy could, you know, minus the fuel of maneuver, which we're both going to spend if we're going to close the merge. Um, this guy could probably just end you for about a dollar 25 and you are talking about million dollar missiles to do this kind of intercept work. So, Hey, there's possibly an interesting economics of scale, depending on how a fight goes. I mean, you'd have to run lots and lots and lots of models to figure which one, but it was just at least interesting to think about. So the original place where the crosshairs were on was on the cockpit. Um, and you could interpret that lots of different ways as the problem. But what I meant was, wouldn't the robot conclude that the like, max damage it could do to the enemy's financial investment was to just put a round through the cockpit, kill the pilot, down the jet, and now they have less human capital. So it took like million-dollar training out of their inventory. The machine would find that as the local minimum or local maximum, depending on how you modeled it. That's literally what it's going to do. It's going to just, it's not even going to think about it as murder. It's just going to kill the guy because you said it's with an ROE to shoot wherever you want. Uh, and he said, Mike, have you ever heard of the Washington Post test? I'm like, no, Kurt, what's that? <laughs> he says, imagine that at random you cover up 90% of the page and you just let one little window out of context somewhere on this page, anywhere, and you tell me what that news headline is in the Washington Post tomorrow morning when somebody takes that little snippet. I'm like, oh, okay. So he said, you can make your point by putting the crossers on the engine and say win the fight. So literally that was where it moves. So that was the yeah. cultural piece where... Uh, I think it was sort of a, you could have interpreted culture like, oh, oh really? <laughs> like you're, uh, you're aiming at the, at the people and like, well, that wasn't really the point. I'm just saying that's what a machine would have done. Uh, well, a machine trained that there's value in that cockpit, yeah, right? right? Realized if each you component, don't train yeah. it, yeah. it won't do that. Or, and yeah, right. you'd literally have probably some hierarchical tree of, in a lookup table of some sort that said, what each component was and what we estimated its value was and its criticality and what targeting it would do. Uh, when we said go for an effective disable, it would target those things, right? So we figured, yeah, if you told it like max damage, it would just eliminate the human, eliminate the ability to control the hardware, and there's however many million dollars for the plane plus the pilot, right? And it figured it did a good job and it got its little 
max value reward, and then it went on about its its mission. So anyway, uh, so that was that was kind of the cultural piece. Cool, cold, and calculated, right? Right. Like, and that's <laughs> like I've always told people like, but if when you're flying this airplane and you're employing weapons, don't get emotional. Like you are yeah. at the long end of a whip, right? <laughs> and you are you are the guy tasked yeah. with pulling the trigger on this dude. The best thing you can do is be take take no pleasure and yeah. derive no pain from it. Just just understand where you're rolling the system. And yeah. that's I, f- I mean that's as cool as like, I mean, put a computer doing that. And that's as cool, cold, and calculated as you're going to get. Yeah, and I think there's a that lot That gets of, uncomfortable for people. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, important ethics in there. And realize um, when you're, if war is a, if think of it in the Clausewitzian, the classic, the extension of politics, right? Okay, fine. So if he's, if he's, if that's, there's some truth to that idea, then really like war is just a conversation. Mm-hmm. Just not had with so many words, right? Mm-hmm. It's just talk, they're talking through your actions in, in a way. And so if that's the case, then really uh, there's a guy named Armin Kirsten and he wrote Kill Robots. It was an interesting little book. Um, but he really said, you know, what if, and this was just straight philosophy, what if you automate the operational level instead of just the tactical? What if you automate the strategic? What if you automate the calculus of, of the going to war and the figuring out what you should do economically to your opponents and whatever? And at some point, uh, what if you had it destroy all, like all, you nearly wipe each other's equipment out, but zero lives lost? Bloodless, right? Except nobody is even clear on the reasons for the conflict, <laughs> potentially at the extremes, and nobody's really clear on um, did we resolve anything because no conversation really took place. So seeing war as a conversation says um, you shouldn't, you're like you say, you shouldn't take pleasure in the act of ending somebody else's life. I think what if the roll of the dice was that I was in that person's shoes yep. and live their life? Would I really be so different? I, I can't really credit myself with that. Um, so I can t- I could say that from that perspective, uh, whenever I have engaged kinetically, um, I have never. And this surprised I think as I shared this with a bunch of Boston school teachers, or you were you know doing a little uh, continuing education credit thing out at Fletcher School at, at Tufts, um, gave the Saturday talk, and I said I have never failed to pray for the person under the crosshairs after I've let the weapon go and there's no more maneuvering. Uh, I said, I get it. They have a different belief system than me. Like I can't actuate theirs. That wouldn't be authentic. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, but it tells me that I understand. And that is my mechanism for understanding how to avoid moral injury, uh, in the, the scenario and understand that I don't think of myself as better than this person. I think they lived a life. They made choices. It would be fantastic. if They didn't make those choices that led them to where we are now, but they did. And the reality is they are harming other human beings to an extent that it is no longer morally responsible to leave them uh, to their devices to go run around and lob people's heads off and, and proclaim jihad. So they got to go. And so the net gain to humanity is actually to end this life, which is awful. But you're not, it's like you say, doing that alone. The, the whip is an enormous amount of legal review to think yeah. through those types of scenarios. <clears throat> and now that I'm like the guy actually doing the thing <laughs> right. at, the, at the you know tactical end of this whip... I owe it to that guy on the ground to do it as cleanly, efficiently, and as painlessly yeah. as possible. Like yeah, I, my goal is to blink you out of existence, so yep. you don't even experience it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're just poop, gone. Yeah. Um, it's like that is the mo- in my opinion the most yeah. morally ethical yeah. way to achieve that and just respect yeah. your enemy for the the fact that they were out there, yeah, willing to pick up a weapon or whatever and do things in yeah. accordance with whatever it is that they believed. So, yeah. and I think I escaped this moral injury yeah. pretty well. 
like, yeah. without issue. Uh, we probably on that, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, I don't think we yeah. did the same, you know, level of, uh, moral injury prevention, probably with our sense rapper side. Yeah. Uh, I realized at some point they had not gone to undergrad philosophy classes and they had not learned use and bellow and use ad bellum and so forth criteria. And so a lot of times we're like, okay, I think I processed that. Uh, it wasn't always clear that the person in the, the right seat had, had gotten the same benefit of processing, but yeah. I just found it kind of my responsibility to, to chat with, you know, oh, yeah. that 20 year old sensor operator yep. after the fact. And in the moment it was everything I could do to give them something clear, like put your crosshairs here. Yep. And like, so they had, they could focus on that individual task in that moment and not, you know, zoom yeah. out a couple levels and be like, holy <laughs> shit, I am about to kill another human being. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's tough. Um, and to try to take most of that load onto myself because I had, thought about this yeah uh prior um i imagine there's in the our counterparts and all the services have very similar conversations and thinking about leadership uh and even if you're the the as far abstract as as the you know on killing would would tell you you can get uh to say that you're the artilleryman who dials in the coordinates and presses the button when it's time to press the button i imagine if you're an artillery officer you still have some very serious conversations with your troops about the same types of things and understanding the consequences, but yeah. Yeah. So I guess, uh, we talked about some positive things that came out of nightfall with, uh, like sure. getting to go to DARPA. Uh, do you, do you take some shots on the chin or was there some negative experiences where people like came at you or um, said, Hey Mike, you're a dick <laughs> and, was, I, and I don't like you. Well, not, in, not really from that one. No. Um, okay. Well, what's interesting is from later articles we can talk about I too. I don't think you're a dick, Mike, and, and I like you. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. Uh, <laughs> the, um, so I bought a house across the street from him. Uh, right, there we go. Um, I think some of the there were later articles we discussed where that it was kind of an issue. Um, but what's very interesting to me is the lack of the people who were most irritated or offended had the least to say. Uh, they retreated to their echo chambers immediately where it was safe and they did not engage. And the very few people who did actually had really interesting arguments. Um, and so that's what I thought was very interesting about those types of, of critiques. There were people, I remember like flipping through and there's like random comments back when you could comment on the <laughs> ASP jars. I think they long since turned that <laughs> off. They learned never read the comments. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, they, Air Force learned they didn't have moderators who were qualified <laughs> to handle such a thing. And so, uh, but some they're like, oh, that guy's captain, huh? That guy's career was short. Like they just assumed bucking the institution was yeah. quite fatal. But that's then you get the opposite reaction. You find out from Air Force senior leaders who didn't, again, like the college professor. They're less interested in that your exact argument. They were just more excited. They're like, whoa, people are thinking about stuff. And some of the, the there's stuff coming out of the 18 corner over there. The, the RPA people are doing things. Uh, I don't know quite what it is yet, but they're doing stuff. And that, that was kind of neat. So uh, I will distinctly remember just a few years later, it was probably, what, 2015 going into 16, when General Welsh came out here. Uh, and as he's walking out, I'm just, you know, the random stooge holding the door. Uh, and he thumped me right in the chest. And he's like, keep writing. I'm like, Yes, sir. <laughs> like, like, what do you tell them at that point, right? Like, so that was that a moment. Like, holy shit, you you've read it. Like, uh, or did generals had time for this nonsense? Yeah, or of were, captains writing. I mean, were you we part were. of the the entourage or part of the little like team like hosting think, the whole thing? I think Reggie Reed was running that show. Gotcha. Uh, at his, and I was just the 
Or was the door just, holder. You were just the, the guy. The door holder, right? So you so. had not interacted with him prior to this. And no. he walked past you and... He did. Keep so. writing. <laughs> like, how do you... No, did you just read a name tag? Like, I literally did not understand the mechanics of how he had essay to understand how all this is going on. Like, who, who on your staff gives you cheat cards? <laughs> anyway... So yeah, so it was very interesting. We're, we're senior Air Force levels. We're very interested, I think, just in to see some engagement. Whether they agreed or disagreed, they were less worried about that. They just wanted to see young folks taking whatever approach they've got, right or wrong, and going out there to argue it. Because if we, in theory, got enough people doing that, we would get to that dialectic where eventually, by pushing all the arguments against each other, we would potentially find some truth and find some repeatable like general principles that we can extract and use synthetically yeah so so you would say that senior the senior leaders were actually somewhat amicable to at least the idea of pushing ideas in this case yeah uh but there wasn't a lot of i guess the the pushback about uh let's say like you that you were treading on sacred sacred ground i i don't think that one interesting enough because it turns out i don't think people are as attached to the hardware as they are to experiences the problem okay. is the experiences are attached to the hardware, so we think. But really what we're, what's happening is if you had to zoom in and look very carefully, it's a proxy system. X leads to Y, but actually leads to Z. So when you trample on something sacred, it's about their culture, their repertoire, their routines, the stuff that Shine talks about. So the things that make them them. The hardware they've seen come and go, and they think, well, but even if that's true, what if, what if it's part of my larger formation? So maybe this isn't actually fatal. Like, eh, it's okay, right? So what is it about the MQ-9 that challenges that experience, you think? Like, is it the, yeah. is it the fact that it's remote, or is it the network? Like, what, what is the real... Yeah, so it's, um, I don't think it's the airplane itself. I don't think they, anybody sees that as particularly intimidating, um, unless you're on the receiving end of it and you don't have air defenses and so forth, right, to do anything about it. Uh, you know, if, if that would probably be a terrifying situation to imagine ourselves in, right? But um, I think what it is the architecture more than anything. Uh, okay, yeah. And so where I started to get some hints at that, which a little bit unexpectedly was in the dissertation research. Well, before you, what do you, what do you mean by architecture, just for our listeners? Yeah, so think about, um, and this is fairly straightforward, but it gets interesting if you start playing with the model. Uh, imagine the world in two layers. So on the lower layer, I've got cockpits. On my upper layer, I've got air vehicles. The fact that we split this, was an interesting uh, change. This is also gives you some thoughts about how, like, what causes what, like, where the cascade changes from come from in society. Typically, uh, like the shock to philosophy in the 20th century immediately, I think, came from physics. You can make that argument. So the modern physicists describe some things that start to really mess with our perception of the universe. Now philosophers are sort of thrown into chaos, like, what if everything is uncertainty? What if everything's probabilistic? What if my life is probabilistic, right? And so they go, and we'll go explore every angle, some of them fruitful, some of them not. But uh, they get the idea because the physicist just... That's a quantum mechanics Right, exactly. Right, so you get, right. a, you get Niels Bohr tells you something, and you're like, wait a minute, that can't be. But what does that mean for the rest of my life? And so you get the questions start rolling, which philosophy changes, which then gets us thinking it becomes part of the... The, what's the, the fancy academic 20 or the zeitgeist of the era. Like it's becomes part of the mood, the things people sort of talk about in the background and keeps coming up in different conversations. So that gets sort of blended in. So, so think about then, um, you know, the, the, what causes, causes what here in the, 
you wanted to know about the, the changes in the culture, the changes in the, the technology and so forth. So what caused this architecture? Uh, all the way back to the IT world, it's virtualization. The minute we realized, wait a minute, we got all this idle time on computers. I should make virtual machines and then I can split the logical computer from the hardware, right? Yeah. As soon as they realized that in the IT world, well, what did we just do in the tactical world? We just split the aircrew layer from the air vehicle layer. So now I've got aircrew as a service that can be connected to lots of places. Mm-hmm. So this, it, for you know, context and background, folks who aren't coming from the IT world, I asked somebody something simple like, oh, you use Gmail or Hotmail or whatever. Like, cool, where is your email? Oh, I don't know. It's somewhere in the cloud. I'm like, well, what's the cloud? Like, well, I don't know. It's it's really the funniest line I got from a colleague is time rented on somebody else's computer. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> it's it's in the cloud. The secret to the cloud is that it's just somebody else's computer. Yes, exactly, right? <laughs> so, so with, a, with a little software in between to, you know, to mask it. Yeah, a little bit. exactly. So, so if the New York servers need to go down and your emails move to LA temporarily, you don't know this. You just keep going to the website and it works fine, right? So what we've done is the same thing. Like, whatever you're controlling, oh, I don't know, this one's in pick a country. What about the one across the hall? Oh, it's in this other country. I'm like, wait, what? And so you ended up with, think about now the walk down the hallway, one of these squadrons, and each one, each of these doors is a portal to another place. Mm-hmm. So what have you effectively done by doing this two-layer architecture? You have used the C2 links to compress distance. So now we're the only people in the world who could realize something happened in theater A, and this is a Dave Blair thought. He says, something happens in theater A that you've been watching, and then you fly a line in theater B, and you realize, wait a minute, they never did that before. Hey, I think this guy cross-pollinated, like, I think that's the guy, right? And so you start to realize, like, you could have these very interesting effects, and the, the squadron could be sort of that uh, nexus between a bunch of worlds. <laughs> yeah, and that, and like, I've absolutely flown multiple theaters in a single day, right? Um, Primarily Iraq and Afghanistan. And I remember like, you can only log one sortie per (laughs) theater per day for your aerial achievement medal. Because otherwise you could just be like, I flew three different sorties today. So uh, that's three towards my aerial achievement medal, sucker. So they just had to like implement business rules against that. And it's it's interesting. It is is like going into a different portal, right? With a different rules. Different rules yeah. of engagement, different you know enemy, different tactics that uh, that they're employing, et cetera. And you had to be able to like boom, boom, yeah. boom, hop and translate between all those things. And it was particularly interesting in the Mac when oh, literally yeah. at the push of a button, you've swapped theaters. <laughs> you've swapped theaters. <laughs> you don't have to get up and walk down the hall. Yeah, you're, um, you're turning into Ender's Game real quick, right? right? <laughs> yeah. So so think about that architecture right now. In that we have uh, we've now pushed. Everyone got obsessed with the fact that we had two layers and we had a, one little dash line between them, which we would think of as a C2 link. Uh, that I have somebody in Nevada controlling something in Syria, Iraq, whatever. Um, then everyone sort of lost their minds in the early 2000s over what does this mean? What's the mor- morality of this? What's, and that's fine. Like society should ask the full range of questions. This is healthy. So we went through that discussion. Nobody actually started thinking about exploiting the architecture. And to this day, I, I find people in our community who are still surprised and they're like, oh, wait a minute. And I'm like, what happens if you make multiple lines back and forth? So let's say I want to go cockpit to air vehicle. Air vehicle finds something interesting, but I don't want the air vehicle to radiate its findings where it is because that will put it in a vulnerable position and yeah. we might lose our ability to see what we're seeing. So I go get it down to the cockpit. Well, I need the cockpits to do is go cockpit to cockpit. 
and then cockpit back up to some other air vehicle that's also in the theater, just nowhere near as sensitive. What have I just done? I popped out of the theater, made a decision, popped back into the theater, and now I've taken way deep, crazy intelligence information about the enemy's order of battle from one place, laundered it through <laughs> multiple cockpits, re-radiate it back out in the theater, and now let's say we put it out on the link. Now a fighter package is given very far advanced information, and they're looking like, how the heck did... I mean, that, that, that guy over the water and fi- see that we're like don't worry about it right that, that's all you know <laughs> presuming low probability low probability of intercept communications and all that fun right. stuff right and on the one that would be deep like you would want something yeah, 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 yeah. like that but the the one that's radiating things further back in the battle space yeah. maybe that's an interesting proposition that says well maybe i'm free to radiate things everyone i'm not stealthy everyone knows where i am right? Right. so so just go ahead I'll be the tattletale for the theater over here and nobody will seem to... So like, everyone knows about me already. <laughs> is that like the, the concepts of turning like B1s into missile trucks and putting F-22s out in front of them? Right. Essentially, so, you could. do the, You want to do the queuing, but what's right. interesting about that is that model, as you, as you phrase it there, F-22 to B1 or what have you, that's staying... It's all classic thinking. It's staying in the theater. It never exits the air layer to go back to the cockpit's layer wherever that is at your traditional link 16 right. networks and exactly. half quick and stuff like that it always tries to take the shortest path it goes a to b because it's very non-linear or very linear rather versus what we're saying is this sort of circuitous routing on purpose to create the ability to pop in and out of theaters cross domains or you know what have you so that i think so to get your your point ultimately this wraps all this around that architectural thing that's the architecture that's what i mean by that yeah when we talk well, about why was somebody annoyed by it, like I, I didn't occur to me until I was in dissertation research and I looked at the way in which uh, one of the pieces of this was the way in which identification with um, a, you know, process, project, organization, community, whatever it was. Uh, There's a guy named Fred Mile published his work on this. Yeah in uh, 1980 and it was it's called a mile scale it's a five point like scale with five questions and he went through his whole dissertation just to prove the existence of this scale or that the scale works as a good yeah. way to capture this you know variable that we've got but what uh mile was was saying was he's trying to understand things like like how is it that you can generate customer loyalty by by brand identification where someone integrates your product into the definition of themselves apple there you go. That's the classic example nowadays is the the Apple fanboy thing. Like, well, why is it more than just brand loyalty? It seems to be fanatical brand loyalty. Yeah, I have I have brand anti loyalty. Yeah, right. For that, for that exact reason, like yeah. I, I I hate that we have to use iPads here. Like they issue them to us. Sure. Yeah. I, but it's the, it's just the inverse of that same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or reactance to somebody's like yeah. uh, perceiving somebody's need for identification with a brand is sort yeah. of kind of weak or something. Yeah. yeah but like with the but Apple leaps to mind and yeah. Miles was trying to do that uh, in a in a broader sense, I guess, or, or uh, looking at it with yeah. Fred Miles was yeah. was trying to understand the generic, in general, what is this phenomenon of identification? Okay. Cool. Uh, he had looked at it in a lot of ways. Like uh, I think his first studies were the Army Strategic Studies Institute. Mm-hmm. So the military actually had this thing kind of first uh, after he published this thing, uh, and it they kind of didn't know quite. It was interesting. It was that, but it was academic, and they didn't quite know what to do with it. Like. Uh, he looked at, uh, you know, platoon and leadership identification with early recruits and then with um, folks who'd been in a platoon for a while. And then, you know, how does the the sergeant versus the, the platoon commander versus the, uh, the, the line guy, how do they see 
their membership uh, and how much identif- what's normal identification. So it told us some descriptive stats about what would be normal for that time in the early 80s for an army platoon. Okay. But it wasn't use X to explain Y. Like use this identification number you just measured to explain something else um, in the way that I was looking to, to do. So he took that measurement among a bunch of other measurements, um, and they do get back to some things Muff was talking about on, on how innovation spread through social networks. There's a, yeah. there's a contagion model, and yeah, among yeah. others, to be, to be looked at there. Um, but this part was, you know, in this dissertation, we wanted to understand we had went to the weapons school. I had them come up with uh, what turned out to be 11 different air power problems, mm-hmm. and they're all problems that everyone knew, like, yep, those are problems. What happens if we lose GPS? What happens if we lose long-range communications? What have you? Good old weapon school. Uh, well, outside the box. Yeah, well, they asked. I asked them for the gamut of the standard things yeah. that people discuss. Wait, yeah. what? What do you experts argue about? So they came up with a pretty compelling list. I'm like, wow. I think every general would look at this and go, "Yep, I know. <laughs> I do worry about some of these things." Uh, yeah. And they uh, asked them that. I said, "Okay, I need four answers per for for each of these issues, okay. <laughs> but I want them all to be right." Like, okay, yeah. what are the different contending thoughts yeah. out there about ways you should deal with this problem? And I said, oh, you want to start fights? I'm like, yes, exactly. It's like, oh, you've come to the right place. Okay. So, so it was very interesting to watch. They, you know, this is now a tool developed by their experts. Okay. Um, I left it to them. I said, I'm just the researcher. I can tell you if the stats are good or not, but I'm not the content master. Yeah. So we took weapons school content and then um, went out and asked people from as many communities we could. And that's not just like the MQ9 weapons school. You're talking nope. about the weapons uh, school writ large. Yep. So okay, yeah. across there, yeah. I'd tell you the leadership uh, out there, uh, Katie Beamer and all of uh, the folks who were running the place, uh, unbelievably generous with their time. Yeah. Uh, I was. It was very humbling and one of those... Uh, you almost feel bad, but you're very grateful at the most same time where you've, you're looking at a group of people who have like negative free time. Um, and yet they are giving out of their lack, not out of their surplus. And so I, I will forever be indebted to the WIC folks for that. Um, so what they um, came up with, we used this instrument. Um, I sent it out, tried to get as many AFSOC, CAF, mobility, uh, and interestingly enough, like where my social network had the most ins was where I found it was easiest to give them, you know, opportunities to give a brief to squadrons. But it was kind of an interesting tour all across the country to from Virginia to Florida to uh, back around New Mexico up to Nevada, back around. So um, went through, did this instrument. And then part of the questionnaire, we asked the mile scale. So what's the level identification with whatever community you call yourself, whatever that is. Here's a list of some kind of common ones. Uh, if it's not it, then fill it in. And it would ask you the question and use your fill-in text or whichever one you picked. And so what was interesting was we got to an option about what do we do if we lose all the long-range communications. Satellites, toast, at least temporarily toast, toast for the relevant time frame. Underwater fiber lines, nope, cut, right? The theaters are isolated, truly. And how do you want to solve this problem? Yeah, for sure, Russia has dropped some... <laughs> You done know, something. Put some right. weapons sitting right on top of the fiber, just waiting for the moment to yeah, sever yep. that. Uh, there were subs that done their job and severed some lines and then some interesting deep sea stuff with UVs or who knows, right? But it kind of just stipulated. And the setup of this questionnaire instrument was imagine you're the half eight, you're the you're the senior futures guy or gal, right? So we're really trying to get at how different people respond to that situation and, right. then, and like, then collate that based on what their were, identity groups. Yeah, so what they were doing or was basically trying to figure out uh, and we knew there's there are other ways to label people too who are like when you group your subjects together, you're 
Um, we could, based on what do you call yourself, that would be the identity label. Um, what airplanes have you flown? And then you run a cluster analysis and figure out there's some pure F-16 people. There's some people who've done, uh, you know, multiple versions of F-15. There's some people who had so much experience. They are F-4 slash F-16 people. They have a different perspective. They've seen things a little different than we knew. That should be the first explanatory variable about what innovations people pick. We assume they pick things that probably go with what they know with some variation, but not everybody. And so we want to understand, but in general, is it true that people kind of reinvent the future of air power in their own image? So the lesson was, okay, if you're an RPA guy or gal, do you try to make everything RPA, whether or not it's actually appropriate to do that? Like you're missing some man-in-the-loop solutions you should exploit because you're so focused on having fought the man-in-the-loop people that you now want to, you've pushed this idea really hard and you've gotten in a habit of doing so. Well, those are also the you know the the networks the bayesian right. type of things like that's all you know right <laughs> yeah. so you so you naturally uh lean towards solutions yeah. that are within that wheelhouse right yeah so that was the thought was do people really just go with what they know and it's not like that's criminal that's just saying how do you recognize it so first pass of this was i asked people like what have you flown where have you spent your time then the second pass was what do you call yourself like well, that's the identity piece so we have an experiential label we have an identity label and then the last one I asked was, I said, here's you know, a list of all these different communities. Suppose um, I just, I'm looking for your best contact in each community. Hmm. And then for you to rate, so that's E3s, EC-130s, you name it. I just went down the list, Air Force maintenance, uh, missile maintenance, whatever, like just listed kind of all the corners of the Air Force. And you could leave it blank if you have no, no contacts there. But if you did, it would say... It had people write the names. I didn't use the names. I just dumped the name data. The, the name point was just to make you picture somebody or think about it. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so what we wanted them to do was was to then rate, and there's some other papers that I borrowed this same idea from, so I'd render, keep compatibility with other studies so we can kind of see if, if the same thing's happening in other commercial settings that's happening in the Air Force. And it asked them just to rate, how well do you know this person? Don't It turns out, don't ask for years time experience, law hours logged, A, people can't keep track of that. And B, like it turns out like the effects you're looking for are already on the the filter that says how much people perceive that how close they are. So it said very close, close, not very close or distant. That's it. Just pick from the drop down. How close are you to this person? Was the question. And so that kind of gave you an idea of where are there cross flows of information across communities occurring? Because it totally should be possible that I can't just look that you use your own ideas. You probably borrow other people's ideas all the time. So we got to account for that somehow. Otherwise, we have massive area uncontrolled for, you know, in this regression. Everything's a remix, Mike. Nobody has original ideas. <laughs> right. They're all blends of other people's yeah. ideas. Yeah, the, the ripples in the pond, right? Like the echoes are, are just are moving through the, the system of the intellect uh, and the human consciousness or something, right? So um, nothing new under the sun, certainly. So what we that's what I was trying to understand was, was how all these three components, these kind of three factors in this model, uh, and at the risk of some tactical sacrilege, call it the CAS model, cognitive, affective, structural, to see how how are people coming to the conclusions. Like, why did they, on question eight, why did they pick D? And why not B? Why is it that when somebody's on question one, if they pick C, I guarantee you there's a pattern where four and five, they're going to pick C and B respectively. Why, right? There's some underlying pattern under here, and that's where we'd use the the unsupervised learning techniques to have it pull out the clustering and figure out what, what are these patterns. All it's really doing is looking for covariance matrices, basically. Mm -hmm. So it pulls those patterns out and then it says, okay, 
there's these following trends and they, each one of these, I'm going to rank order them for you. And it does this in like a half a second, which is amazing. Right. But it rips through these massive matrices of data. Like it's nothing that something I would never be able to do. This is, here's the intuition of what it was doing. Imagine that we took these ABCD multiple choice questions on old school, like Scantron bubble sheet thingy. And what if I did hold you, you did it and you did it off and I did it. And we, I held the answer sheets up to the light. And I figured out which ones of these agreed more. And then like, if they agreed, when did they, what else did they agree on? It just did all that for you in a fraction of a second, which was amazing. So it pulls these out and then it says, all right, each pattern I found, I found in this case, it found about uh, 14 reasonable patterns. It doesn't know what they are. It doesn't know what they mean. It just knows there's covariance. It says yeah. when A happens on... Well, that's your job. Right? They're like, <laughs> exactly. Like, here, here, researcher, go figure it out. It's your problem, right? Like, oh, great. This is going to be a minute. Uh, so, but it puts them... It, it gives you the, the fancy term eigenvector here, right? So it, it gives you the how much is explained, um, how much of a variation in the whole system is explained by this pattern I found. And it'll rank order them from most to least. So your first two, three, four dimensions are kind of your most powerful. Uh, and then you can plot them and you get the scatter plots where there's respondents are all over the board. And you're like, great, dimension one versus dimension two. What does that mean? <laughs> right? And so you have to go through and look at what's the choices on the left-hand side versus the right-hand side. What do these lists have in common with themselves that are so opposing each other? And now this is a qualitative step. And so when you write this research up, this is where you be very open with your academic peers about this is what I saw. This is what I interpreted. I understand there could be other interpretations, but I think this is a reasonable one. If you disagree, please write back and tell me what you think this means something else. But none of the labeling finesse was probably going to change a lot of the outcomes. So what that did was it helped us understand that if you plot this and I said, now I want computer, I want you to give me uh, kind of like a centroid or center of mass uh, yes, exactly. Right? Yeah, it's Scotty style, right? Uh, but I said, all right, I, which in reality, of course, is like typing hundreds of lines of R code, which is whatever, right? But so I, I tell it that I want some options where I'm like, I want you to go back to this other label I gave you in the data of experiential community, right? Tell me that people who flew similar planes and we'd, we'd run a cluster on that to figure out like these are pure Raptor guys. These are people who did air and ground, like fire, combined fighter stuff. These are people who did bombers. These are people who did all AFSOC, um, whatever. So and I'm like, cool, I want you to plot where these those community labels for these respondents who are in the final chart. I want you to, to plot the center of mass each of these. And then now your plot shows you, look, maybe your F, pure F-16 folks are kind of in the upper right quadrant. But the Raptor dudes are, you know, two and a half units further east. And, uh, you know, one up and, you know, one up and over and two and a half over or whatever it is. So it gives you this kind of final plot. And you literally now have this interesting, like, map of the thought diversity of the Air Force. Because the questions were, if you were the A8 and you're about to brief the chief, you're about to say, all right, it's the end of the fiscal year. I had all these project teams who honestly thought they did it right. They're all convinced of their solutions. I had to pick the best or maybe the least worst, <laughs> you know, the least bad solution. Uh, and I think with the time available we got in the fiscal year, this is what I should brief. Like it or hate it, maybe you love it, maybe hate them all, I don't know, but this is the best we got. Take that. So literally what these people are telling me is if they had the power to reinvent the Air Force incrementally, just this year's investments, and if you did this year after year, you would turn the course of the institution over a long period of time. What they would do is they would tend to group toward these certain outcomes. So who you ask in the Air Force, like someone's, oh, what was the Air Force thing? Well, there is no one Air Force. There's all these sub-distinct, just like there's branch identity, there's these distinct ways of thinking. They don't always 
track with community. There's always outliers. And that should be how the research should come out. That you should be able to see people who defy the stereotype of their community. Because that happens in real life, right? And so if we're capturing it, honestly, that should happen. And it did. And so we had a few of those. But then we had the mass majority who tended to vote similarly on the future of the Air Force. Okay, so that told you kind of step one of like, how do we get back to your point on identity? So now let's, we use the experiential labels. That was step one. Now let's go to those identity labels of what people say they are. And I looked at each of the 44 option choices that were out there. I said, given an increase in, in points on the mile scale. So if I go from zero to one, one to two, whatever, what is the change in probability that somebody will pick this particular option? And in the vast majority of them, from no community, is there any match, which tells you very little identity effects. They're picking it for some reason that has not to do with the variation on the identity scale. And then, of course, you're like, well, how do you, how do you control for just identity? And like, well, look, you realize the captains and the colonels are going to give different answers. And they should. Experience should have changed. Maybe they broaden their perspective. So you look within a given community. So we're only comparing, let's say, uh, you know, special operations to special operations. And then you put a control variable in for rank. So we're comparing captains within soft to captains within soft, colonels within soft to colonels within soft. Uh, and the same thing with the fighter community, the bomber community, and so forth, and RPAs as well. So you go around and, and you realize, like, I'm talking about apples to apples comparisons within each of these bins of people in their about the same station in life. I'm saying among those, if what's left to vary is just how they responded to the mile scale about their own community, you have the captain who's not very identity committed. And then you have the captain who's completely oversold on it. And you've probably seen these people at the bar yeah. where, you know, one of them, I think, man, that guy's like, I wish I were like that. Like so successful, amazing fire pilot. But I can somehow tell that guy doesn't need the F-16 to know who he is. Yeah. He's an amazing human being. He was going to be an amazing human being. Whether the Air Force handed him that hardware, this hardware, or some other piece, or told him to go sit behind a desk, and then he found a way out of that desk and got out and let airmen. And so, like he was just going to be an amazing human being. Oh wow, she's just awesome at this. She's going to be awesome whether the Air Force kicked her out or not. Right? It's just going to just be an amazing person. There's those, and then there's the folks where you're like, ooh, if the doc told them they can't fly anymore, I think I think maybe some watching this person closely for their own safety is like seriously in order. Why they're so invested in the experience and the being and the belonging, like it's they don't know who they are. That, that is the model that the weapon school takes. They presume you are that guy. I don't know. I, I no, would say, I do know that okay. having having been been a guy that washed out. Okay, and like the number of meetings you have to have with like the commandant and this guy, and they're like, it's okay, you know, it's not a big <laughs> deal. Like Must many of my friends on. washed out, they went on to big things. I'm like, yeah, I, look, dude, I don't need this meeting. Yeah, this. My identity is not wrapped up in graduating your yeah. course. I don't care. You I guess I mean? at that point, yeah, you can you can then just take, you know, which nobody at that point may be exactly in the mood for. But maybe the gracious pushback is like, sir, that's really thoughtful of you to to, yeah, yeah. to worry about me like that. But like, I really am not going to jump off a cliff, I promise. Yeah, you. yeah and that, that's why I wanted to tell. Like, listen, sir, I'm yeah. good. <laughs> like, yep. we're all good. Everybody's good, sure. uh, et cetera. So I think, like, it's also easier to, to bias to that side, like assume yeah. people are that. Yeah, I, it's probably the safer answer of yes. uh, wor worrying about it in case it's a thing, right? Yep. Um, and it, it may be, too. There's a correlation between people invested. They pushed for the hardest thing they could find. They got it. It didn't work out. Mm -hmm. You probably, we intuitively did probably pick up on that identity correlation. They might have just invested a lot of life in it. Yeah. Um, that's totally reasonable. So I think those are all good you know, leadership insights. Um, so this 
regression you run called logit and telling tells you like what's the what's the probability of a yes no decision choose it not choose it based on a smooth sliding increase in this scale when comparing for like rank like background and specialty ran it all the different ways the experiential one ran the identity model like run it all and it basically says there were a couple of key ones that the fighter community would bite off on that was making a very identity-based response. And there were a couple that the RPA community on was making an identity-based response. Okay, okay, there were, okay. There were a few that Soft was starting to do, but not quite. Yeah. But here's the deal. I don't think they're immune. I think they had the same thing. Here's what I think happened with the data. I asked them, what is your, what do you think of yourself as? They all said special operations. I'm, I'm spec ops. Yeah. Okay. But really, like, everyone's claiming a common label on AFSOC, but... Really, if you drill down, if I if I said, cool, you say that, but let me reduce the data set to CV-22 pilots in their own bin, gunship pilots in their own bin, and MC pilots in their own bin, and we keep breaking this down, and you'd start to realize, like, if I did that and artificially imposed some binning, all of a sudden I would see those effects, but they're muting each other out because they all showed up as the same label. Yeah. I've so got they a, averaged out. got a U-28 buddy, and he will talk about... The, uh, the difference between AC-130 and U-28 stuff and like the identity and how they get treated yeah. within AFSOC. But I could see when the bins are large, everyone's just and they're, grabbing, oh, yeah. the, grabbing the sword, the, the shield with the swords, right? The AFSOC <laughs> emblem. Uh, but, but yeah, like you could say, yeah. you could break it down further and there could be yeah, I think they would the same within thing. AFSOC, but within what you, what you were doing at first, it, like the AFSOC identity overshadowed, I guess. Is it, like, yeah. Well, general? it's, it's too many different yeah. sub-communities with not enough distinct samples. So if I had broken them out, NSAV, U28, like you say, all these different groups, and they wouldn't have a chance to average each other out in the data. Yeah. So what were, uh, with the fighters and the RPA guys, what were these trends? That was the interesting part. And so you could almost see in the data explaining why they've, the historical tension had been like they're almost at each other's throats. Okay. Tell more. <laughs> and so it was, it was a question that I didn't expect. I assumed it was going to be the, what happens if you automate the fighter thing? Cause that was question one was, yeah. Okay. So here we are, we don't have enough mass. How do we want to solve the, the projection power mass? Real problem? quick automation going on in fighters right now. Okay. Automatic refueling. Like there, I've seen video of F 18s refueling oh, with a dude in the seat with their hands up on the, <laughs> on the, the handles. Um, and death claw. You're familiar with Deathclaw? Mm. That's the so. <laughs> it's it's what Nightfall talks about. It's about so the Nightfall article talks about the, you know a computer choosing like the the best aim point. Sure. Right? Um, Deathclaw <laughs> is a, a system in F-16s, I think, that they tested at the test pilot or you know the test community. Sure. Um, there's a F-16 variant or something called the vista uh which basically you can oh. change the flight characteristics in flight yeah and you just reprogram it and the airplane will fly differently oh interesting um, and so they use that system to create something that will improve the accuracy of ground strafe oh, you just tell it where to go and the airplane goes oh, <laughs> so it's this is happening this oh, shit's happening geez. so i yeah but to your point john like i thought that was going to be the contentious question or it wasn't yeah. And there there okay. were people in, in the Raptor world who said, that would have been contentious right. too. and that was the, the surprising part. We said, look, man, you got to leave room for human beings, not just to be their stereotype, but they are independent thinkers. They are allowed to deviate from their, their community's common core accepted ideas and to challenge those ideas. And that's good. That tells you that's a healthy community that has the ability to cross check itself and decide 
I want to explore an idea that uh, is super unpopular. Okay, go with idea, right? And they should be able to have that in an orderly fashion, right? <laughs> so, uh, so what ended up being was uh, it was about what the communications question. It was the C2 problem. Okay. And the choices were on that come out, everything's cut. And you said you could solve this in the war plans where you say... We're going to have some rally points. We're going to know what to do, but we're all going to solve it by practicing it and drilling it. So that's how we're going to do it. We take some risk in that we have less dynamic coordination, but we know the core mission tasks and we know our objectives. And so there's a lot of autonomy. Each wing is going to, who's in that theater is just going to do its thing. Then we said, okay, um, your next one could be, um, you know, that there's, we're going to solve this in the, you know, the lanes. We're going to do geographic separation and we're going to redistribute some of those high demand, low density type things that you got to have support assets. Uh, we're going to distribute those out to the wings. So maybe they don't live in a consolidated wing. They're spread out. And that lets the, uh, the, the wings in the theater, you know, go to that level of autonomy. Uh, and so they're going to, they're going to all go basically run independent parallel wars. That is an idea. Um, you could do something in that flavor. And these ideas were not like the exact O plan, right? Like it's no suggestion saying something around this seems to be the closest to the idea. Or is the idea, we call it the extra bacon model, which was you could launch our Q4s locally and you'd get theater comms back up between the bases uh, and you get a bunch of data backhaul, but you're not going to be able to talk to CONUS. So you guys are still kind of on your own as a kind of as a NAF level, right? And then the last one said, well, you should just do CubeSat, Operational Response of Space, something. Uh, I don't care if it's you repurpose the old ASAT missile from the 80s and you launch some CubeSats out of it, do something, right? You know, the California Guard launched those off F-15s or something in the, off the coast. So uh, what they... If I recall correctly, the space community does have some like rapid response, like SAT capability. Yeah, uh, and it may be that Elon Musk has more rapid capabilities than, <laughs> yeah, than we ever so dreamed this of. Had to do, uh, this, <laughs> this had to do with the, the lone survivor story and the fact that oh, that dude was like isolated. Okay. Uh, and that drove... Uh, some yeah. space suits. And I only heard about this at SOS because I had some space nerds in the in there, and they were talking about yeah. all that cool capability. So I know that space does a lot of super cool stuff like that. Yeah. But I think you know the future is yeah. probably something like Starlink. Like maybe so. People yeah. are already getting like hot and excited about using yeah. Starlink As with RPAs and so forth. Yeah. Uh, somewhere somehow right now uh, they're talking about it in the echo community and things like yeah. that yeah uh so that was the option option d on that question that said restore global comms was the kind of shorthand label for the prompt uh the more within the fighter community we controlled for rank the more they they scored higher on the mile scale of identification the less likely they were to pick the option so that is to say you compared to your raptor buddy or to your viper buddy uh, if you are a 4.5 on this scale, there's about a 4% chance you'll choose it. Whereas if you're down at a 4.3.9 to 4.1, there's a 40% chance you might choose it. So you're open to it and expect a 100% choice, right? But there's, there's some chance of you choosing it that is uh, at least 25%. I mean, you gave it one out of four as a fair shot, right? But there's some higher, and that was interesting, it was above 25%. It was more, actually more than 25% likely to choose it uh, if, you, if you did that. But, but when you got to whatever the you know the kind of breakover scale it's one of those like sigmoid s type curves that just like it just falls off like a waterfall uh so the waterfall fall off point was somewhere in the low fours or whatever but if you scored that as a fighter eye you were not going to pick this one particular option and that that option was restore global communications yep. and i realized that's your point i said they hate the architecture yeah why why was yeah. why was the global communications part yeah 
so that's what that definition I can now you have to go back to qualitative interpretation like what does this yeah. data mean I just, yeah. I just have data I now put, put a meaning on it and now we have to leave other scholars the right to argue that they think there's a different meaning uh, and then argue their, their versions of the story so here's the version of the story uh, the thing that makes RPA capable is this global C2 architecture yeah it could be regional we can do TT&T we can do mesh networks we can do uh, atmospheric, uh, you know, other, you know, KU point to point, uh, we can use relays as other aircraft, or we can use other unmanned vehicles as relays over, you know, a large distance. We do lots of kinds of interesting stuff, but the point is it creates this distance from the fight that is central to exactly how this community does what it does. I don't remember if it was episode three or four, uh, mm-hmm. of this podcast where I, the thing that the biggest innovation in that the RPA is, is the network. I don't care yep. at all about the airplane, the cockpit's yeah. nothing. It's the reach back. It's the ability for communications to flow rapidly and the change of pace that that comes with yeah. um, employing the thing and like how quickly your decisions can now be made. And we, we talked briefly about the, why working for the task forces yeah. it was like premier because they make that decision quickly same yep. day cycle it doesn't have to do the standard <laughs> yeah. uh you know 72, 72, 72 uh, hour cycle that you know uh guys like squeeze and things like that were writing articles and papers and SAS papers about and yeah. s- despite their you know immense like impact yeah uh within our community at least right haven't been able to change <laughs> yeah because that's it's there's a, an enormous bureaucracy around those yeah. things and it's the network that is uh changing the uh, the way the Air Force is going to conduct business in the future. Yeah. I think you're on to something, too, that um, Chuck Rafferty had gotten it as he drafted into what's now the current syllabus down here. And you notice he refocused the entire thing on this abstract idea of a kill chain or that find, fix, track, target, engage, assess, the dynamic targeting cycle. And what I eventually realized the genius of what he'd done was uh, he had found a metastable process, uh, something that no matter what mission set you do, you can, you're basically taking F2T2EA and re-slicing it and dicing it in different ways. And it's not surprising. Like it's not that far from like an OODA loop or some other fundamental observation of how humans process information and act. All models uh, yeah. are wrong. Yeah. Everyone loves that. Some George models GP are, <laughs> some models are useful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that it is interesting that that quote is spread so so rapidly and so widely uh, in the Air Force's various communities. I think test folks seem to be very into it too. Um, so, but you're right. It's there. There is a model for looking at a situation, and it turns out to be a very versatile model uh, because you can say, well, what is it when you do this strike coordination reconnaissance business? Well, I do the FTT from one plane while strikers come in and do the target HSS. What is it when I do CAS? Sometimes, uh, sometimes yeah. I do the, the engage assess myself. Yep. Sometimes. Yeah. Optional, right? If it's, yeah. if it's necessary, right? So, yeah. um, so, but what is it when you do SCAR? It's, well, it's you and the ground party are, are working back and forth step by step and you do it together. Maybe he found it. Maybe you found it. It doesn't matter. We understand how to pass the ball. It's very back and forth, like a zipper, like uh, maneuvering of information, right? Through the system. Um, so a lot, therefore a bunch of either radio calls or PCAS or something like that, you know, to do digital cast or whatever, but, yeah. but there's some exchange back and forth. There's a passing of the ball. And that, like, hey, congratulations, that's cast. But it's the same, right? It's the same fundamental stable process that's underneath everything. And it turns out you can abstract this all the way to the political in these strategic competition or great power competition or whatever you want to call them, engagements, if you're willing to say that the engagement is not always kinetic. Mm -hmm. The engagement sometimes is an attack on a state's credibility when they swore up and down in front of the UN 
in general session that they did not do X, Y, and Z. And then maybe the president says, oh, really? <laughs> we had this discussion back channel and you're not agreeing to the narrative we agreed to. So here you go, CNN. He throws out a video of them doing exactly the thing they just swore up and down they did not do. And it's super awkward in a very international public forum very quickly. The engagement, the kill was not a kinetic kill. It was a credibility kill. So if you're willing to see the engagement as something as flexible of a construct as that, then you can now make some really bold statements that are going to really jar some people. But the good, we should have these thoughts and then figure out what's true about them. I would claim there's no such thing in the real world as ISR. It's all fine, fixed track, fine, fixed track, fine, fixed track, fine, fixed track. <laughs> ISR is the useful as a management construct for figuring out how do you organize human activity? How do you like buy the equipment? How do you, where do you station the people? Like that's what that is. It's institutional. So ISR exists institutionally within the bureaucracy of need, but it doesn't exist on the battlefield because the only thing that the planes are doing, the tanks are doing, the F friendlies and the enemies are doing back and forth is find fixed track. Oop, lost track. Dang it. Start over. Find fixed track. Found them again. Cool. What do you want to do about it? Let them go. There's no ROE match. Okay. Let it go. Moving on to the next thing, right? Yeah. Oop, this one. And I met ROE. Oop, engage. <laughs> right? So you go through the full cycle. Uh, and do you do it on board, off board, multiple platforms, one weapon system? Who, who knows, right? It depends completely on the context and the situation. So that's where I, th I think, like I said, uh, Joker's point on getting the world oriented around this fundamental construct was yeah. very interesting. But I don't think it's the, the speed at which that happens per se that is the thing that was causing the blanching, right, in, in, the, in your Miles model. It was the, was it the, was it the distance or the separation? Uh, I don't it was, think, yeah, I see so, what you mean. Yeah, because yeah, like, Greg, because like, I think the, the speed of it, they would have been down for, right? Like, yeah, if, I don't think anyone objected to that. As I talked it, to dudes from Strike Eagles, for example, who yeah. were frustrated uh, sitting over Syria, waiting for clearance to engage, waiting for clearance to engage. Waiting for an RPA to find their target and oh, then uh, call them in. Right. And <laughs> so market for them. It turned out, um, yeah, if you've got a bunch of lawyers working angles, from far distant places that, yeah, all of a sudden a flow of information that solves the legal questions enables uh, the, the competitive, um, you know, or the, the actual battlefield engagement, like to yeah. accelerate. So as much as like, I don't want to have to answer lawyers' questions. Like, well, and why am I talking to a JTAG? There's not, there's not even boots and ground in the theater. Why, what is this, right? Like, I'm tired of this ground party control model. And then the JTAG says, well, hey man, if you're really that tired of talking to me, you can talk to the four lawyers behind me. Or I can talk to them for you. I'm like, no, it's fine. Let's just stay tackled. I'll talk to you, man. So, thanks, bro. Uh, so as they I, they watched that, they would get frustrated and they would just count down 20 minutes to bingo, 15 minutes to bingo. And then they'd call bingo and I'd be like, whoa, whoa wait, wait, come back. Like, no, man, that's what bingo is. And they leave and you leave with weapons and you know, no gas and plenty of weapons left. And that's not a way you want to leave. So as they got, a nine would show up and all of a sudden sort out with the precision required. And so you say, well, what did the nine do? Really, the nine is one of those examples, and RPA as an architecture is the blending, I think, I can make this argument, the blending the of... The nine here being the MQ9. Yep, right. So uh, we're, we're blending kinetic and information. Oh, it's just the nine. The nine. Like, <laughs> the, like the Ohio State. The, the Ohio State. <laughs> Capital V, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're blending kinetic and informational warfare smoothly and, and seamlessly. And so what was missing in that scenario, why were Strike Eagles going home fully loaded or mostly fully loaded and frustrated that they couldn't go out and do the job that they came out to do. Insufficient sensor resolution 
an insufficient ability to knock out the coordination costs. Whereas a nine rolls in, and it might not be a particularly intimidating looking platform, especially if it's already spent its weapons. You're like, some robot, right? But what, what's going on there? I'm like, oh no, the resolution of the sensors and the ability to coordinate fast are going to make five strike eagles very happy customers here in about 10 minutes. Yeah, he's, you're pushing 720 video with, you know, yes. uh, like immediate yeah. access to the decision makers at the AOCs and things like that. You're like, yep, yeah. yep, done, 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 cool. All right, everybody's cleared. Let's do this thing. Yeah. So one of the things, this is another you know, great Dave Blair point. He said, the first thing that happened because of this model, because of the tech, how it, you know, the com, uh, convergence of how this came together, he said, uh, it's the first time that uh, air power has been able to uh, resolve targets at the individual level of human identity. Like I can tell you who somebody is potentially. And we did lots and lots and lots for a lot of years, right? Based upon some, you know, particular signatures and things you know about them, their gait and their, uh, their yep. limbs and their, you know, <laughs> silliness and like where they tend to frequent, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, appearance characteristics and all that stuff. So, right. so in the past, air power had been able to resolve unit type. That was easy. I can tell you it's a bunch of T-82 tanks and I got about this many. Size, activity, location. Uh, yep. You can do all the salute <laughs> report things. And so they're, they're there. But I, I couldn't tell you, like, hey, is that Vladimir such and such's battalion or whatever? Like, well, I can't see the markings, so, or, but maybe I could get the markings if I know which one he commands through some other intelligence sources or whatever. But, like, the idea that you were going to target a person or create effects out of band. So think, think Russians in Ukraine, the whole uh, calling the mother to get him to get the answer to the cell, get the kid on the cell phone, and then they target the cell phone and kill him, right? And so, uh, you know, these particularly, you know, level of Russian cruelty, I think, is, is leveled into that, uh, you know, approach. But what were they doing? They used kind of a multi-domain out-of-band solution uh, to, re- to do exactly what we did, to resolve targets down to an individual level of human identity. So that MQ-9 showing up in that various battle space where those fighters were frustrated that they weren't getting any love right there was was solving the resolution problem and it was solving the coordination cost problem coordination costs that we tactical folks on the on the field do not get a vote in that's the country said that there's a lot of political risk here you do a great job on the wrong targets it's completely over for us the foreign competing great power narratives prevail and we lose big and so it doesn't matter if you won you lost i mean that's contingent upon the type of conflict you're in right so uh high political cost and like we're, we're not talking uh, tanks rolling through the folder gap yeah. and stuff like that. We're talking about yeah, highly politically sensitive things, which has been pretty much every single conflict yeah. since uh, what World War Two. <laughs> uh, potentially, I mean, you still have you know large large force on force engagements all the way up through Desert Storm, and you can argue that Serbia's and the the Balkans conflicts are sort of in the same vein, uh, but it's sort of the the trailing end of that in the twentieth century, I think. And that's not to say that there are not major force on force engaged in the future. It's just sort of a, if like, if we went back to that notion of that, that war is this conversation that nations are having through action rather than through words and diplomacy, they've all realized the informational element and the, it's subverting the other person's population to break down internal support for the war is how you stop the other as war engine. It's one of the ways. And so we've realized like the narrative is always going to be a part of this conflict, even when you get five minutes of your great, big, massive tank battle you hope for. Not that anyone wants to present you this because they saw Desert Storm and they realized they learned pretty quickly. All right, so they're going to deny you the tar- targeting information. That's part of the defense of how do you stay alive as a, as a tank commander. Uh, <laughs> deny them targeting locks on me as best I can. How do you stay alive as an SC-22 operator? 
uh, don't radiate unless I have to, and then move what I can, right? So, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of goes into that. Move. Yep. So, uh, yep. I'm up to see me. I'm down. Like same same type of uh, you know basic thought. Um, so, so to your point, John, all this. What is this like? What is it? It's not. It's the distance. It's the fact that C two was being done somewhere. And what what did that remote C two tell you? Yeah, because if the F 15s are about to be happy, I just want you to connect these dots for me. Like yeah. If the F 15s are about to be happy because the MQ nine can has the greater sensor fidelity and can fuse together and can be a great team player. They can, yeah. can really, and so they're, they're getting their rocks off, so to speak. Right. Uh, why, why were they unhappy about that or, or what? Not, That's not, not what anyone's unhappy about. Well, what, not unhappy, but why are they yeah. unsettled? I should say. So yeah, the why and the, yeah, the, to phrase it formally based on the, the variables we put into this regression, we are asking the data, what why is there a decrease in probability of selecting restore global comms yeah as a result of one each progressive one point increase in mile scale response to identity with the fighter community control for rank yeah okay so what we're really saying is why would you if you over identify or you highly identify let's say because we don't we don't know we don't know what over is for what's the qualitative piece here yeah what why would you see that option as a threat yeah. And the threat is because it's, it is the substantive piece of technological achievement that says you actually don't need to be out there out front. You don't need to sit in that thing anymore. Mm. Fundamentally, because global comms exist, their RPA argument, at least as they understood RPA, like if we started telling them, hey, guess what? Um, we can actually be in the Pacific Theater in the back of some other C-17 or whatever. And they're like, well, I don't like that either, but like that wasn't one of the options. We don't know. We didn't ask that question. So, and these platforms that are providing you the target queuing that you need, they also happen to have some weapons on board, right? So they're they're demonstrating that, yeah. you know, <laughs> like you're, you're it starts to raise you're questions. just here. Like, dude, when I was the the LNO at the Kox, so the six oh ninth at uh, LUD, right on the other side of my desk was the Sato, the senior or the Soto, senior offensive duty officer, right? And she did a bunch of like dynamic targeting things when things would prop up and you'd see the lawyers come down yeah. and you'd see the the guy at the top of the A33 um and then you would see uh the guy with the call <laughs> sign that like can direct you to do some shit right yep. he would come down and they would all sit there and talk and they're looking at this like little mosque there's an MQ9 watching it and looking at it and they're like well we're waiting on these A10s with the 38s to show up you know that MQ9 has a 38 on board. Well, yeah, yeah, but we're still waiting. Yeah. You know, and like they waited for this thing, and I and I leaned over and I told them like, if you blow that thing up, that 38 is going to knock down the wall of that mo- little mosque thing next door that you're very concerned about. Yeah, it's gonna happen. Well, we'll we'll shift the aim point and this now. It's like, <laughs> dude, yeah. that MQ9 has four Hellfires on it. Yeah, they can punch in there and do what you need to have done without hitting your without structure. They didn't door. care. Right. So like the MQ nine was the full package could have done the entire thing that they wanted to do, but their entire mental model was built around another idea. And And when you're under pressure and kind of in go mode, uh it's very hard for any of us to switch mental models. Yep. That was sort of the point of the dissertation research was to find, Hey, look, man, like we're all going to have these blind spots. Yep. Some of them are emotional, some of them are cognitive, some of them are about our social connections. Um, but we need to know where they are for all of us as feedback. So we understand like, where's my mental model weak such that I'm that guy where I'm looking, talking to the Soto yeah. and I 
keep suggesting something and someone god some annoying captain over there keeps trying to tell me something i just <laughs> that was a major at the time right, right like so, right, so a little more credibility yeah but like uh well sure but the the major from cyber <laughs> who says these weird computer things i don't understand yeah yeah uh is saying something but i don't i don't actually process all right. of this and i go oh that's interesting and i go back to what i was doing and he's like what i could have just solved that for you right yeah i missed it because i did not understand my blind spot in cyber they knocked down the wall of, of that and mosque hit, hit the yeah, mosque yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah they didn't hit the mosque but the explosion oh yeah blew in the side of the, the so thing target, that they called a mosque it. okay the, the actual target was destroyed yeah for sure uh but the secondary effect so they needed a smaller munition which the the platform providing them the intel that yeah you know watching the target that they were looking to strike could have destroyed with, with a lower collateral munition yeah. and they elected not to so it seems like it's it's not just as simple as that the MQ-9 is remote, that it's a threat to, to that identity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's that it's remote, but that it also has this whole architecture that allows it to step through the F2T2EA completely, yeah. like that cuts off like the, the TEA privilege, right? Because like if there was an asset that could do all the F2T2EA stuff, but in the same way of the MQ-9, but there was a little dude in it. They would be happy about that, and if but if or or you can. I think a, people might still laugh at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But if there was yeah, a but slim if there was a ride in the nine. Right? But yeah. if there's like a or if or if the MQ nine is what it is, but for whatever reason, say it couldn't carry weapons. Yeah, they wouldn't care about it that. Or it wouldn't be it's that possible. Much of a threat either. I, I didn't ask it in this yeah, way. Yeah, like yeah. I didn't ask a question that would allow me to get that level of resolution to yeah. differentiate. But you could be on something. It's possible. Uh, it basically it's it, when do you see something as a complement, and when do you see it as a supplement? And supplements are threatening. Yeah. If you're very invested in what you're doing, I think that's a reasonable uh, way to interpret the data. But certainly we could have lots of scholars look at it different ways and make some very interesting counter arguments. I'd be happy to hear those too. Yeah. Cause when you were first talking in the beginning here about flying as art and, and that's really what we were, what you mm -hmm. were going after with nightfall, I immediately thought of uh, an interview with Bobby Fisher. We'll call it an interview uh, in his dotage, <laughs> Bobby Fisher being the, storied chess player chess eccentric and yeah. storied chess player and he's talking about why he hates chess now like in his older age or at least why he hated it when he was older um because he thought when he was it had to do with all the theory because yeah. when he was when he was in his prime or at least when he would like chess what, nine yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he was nine playing multiple people <laughs> oh, playing multiple goodness. grandmasters at the same time just walking around anyway um Chess, at least to him, didn't it wasn't fully solved, and the art oh, of it, yeah. the art of it, and the intuition of it was the the first and most important aspect of chess, mm. and that the theory and like the stuff that you could get from books about structure uh, and things like that were not as important. They were important, absolutely, and he read voraciously, but um, he felt, especially with the advent of computer technology and being able to like mass disseminate all this stuff about chess and make it wildly available to everybody mm -hmm. um, that the theory has become, and with computers running engines on sure. chess, that chess is much more solved, mm. like much into the mid and the late game. Yeah. And that it cre there's still room for creativity, but it's now less important than theory. Like theory yeah. and structure is the primary aspect of chess, like memorizing positions, mm. memorizing theory, and then, having the capacity <laughs> to internalize that yeah. and then just express it and like recognize those patterns. But like true, like pure ingenuity, pure intuition yeah. 
was like now third on the totem pole, I think is what he said. And he's just like, I just don't care about it anymore. That's interesting. That. The... And I was like wondering when you were talking about flying his art, whether that was what's going on, like that they feel like by the emblem of the MQ-9 and its computerization, uh, that it's somehow the the art of it is being like pushed slow, lower on the totem pole in importance. But I don't know. So here's a question. Who finds a car more beautiful? The engineer who understands how the shocks work and the uh, the internal combustion engine or the electrical engineer that hmm. understands how, like, how the Tesla generates as much torque as it does or just that guy that like, hey, I think it looks pretty. You know what <laughs> I mean? And he goes out in the garage yeah. and I like the way it makes me feel when I hit the gas. Like who, who finds it more beautiful? Probably the engineer. So when you solve these problems yeah. at a deep fundamental level, like that guy gets it and he finds the beauty in the system and everything else. I think you've got two interesting arguments going in parallel here. One of them is the intimacy with the problem. I think that's the shared between these two perspectives you both shared. Um, It's, yeah, there's probably something about it's your puzzle, your problem. It's something that you have invested a lot of time in. It's something that has become very personal and you've, you've felt frustrations when things didn't work. And then you've felt exhilaration when things did work and you've discovered some patterns. And in a lot of ways you are at the heart of the machine really like you are the problem solving machine. Uh, and there's something really neat about you becoming or, or being, and there's just sort of oneness with, with the thing that you're interested yeah, it's in. An ontological yeah. metaphysics. Happening. Yeah, I know yeah. There's, there's something interesting to that too. Um, right. <laughs> it's the book before physics. That's why it's metaphysics. <laughs> uh, so, but there's also this, this other, you know, piece of the equation that says, um, where it starts to differentiate, I think John, what she said was a solved problem ceases to be interesting. Yeah. When somebody has solved it, particularly in this mechanistic way, um, maybe if we wanted to like artistic, like how does, how does society, like, are they attaching like some sort of artistic, uh, that's the, that's the question. I mean, I, that, that could I be think, individual like, that like, yeah, ask each particular pilot what he or she thinks about yeah, that. Sure. You're going to get different answers, but yeah. But if, if I had to do that, like how does society in general respond? Like maybe your artistic way of looking at it is, Shakespeare's uh, Prospero character and as he's mourning the end of magic and the beginning of the modern era and what have you, right? Like you, you watch the character and you're like, okay, I see what, what Shakespeare is trying to say. He's communicating something about his own time as he's watching really the seeds of the industrial revolution are just starting to, to, to be thought of and, and to happen there. So, so he's observing something keenly about his own society and then he writes it into literature and expresses it in this really blown out of proportion on purpose storytelling way so shakespeare never blows anything out of proportion. right it's, no no it's all realistic it's all perfect it's not over dramatized i swear uh so my dad hates romeo and juliet so much and he wants he's like why do they fucking kill kill themselves it's so dumb like can't be together just go get another broad you know like it's just like it, life ain't that bad like she's, Fan- not, she's not that hot you know like go get another one and it's like it's so dumb and he's just like can't never get past so it. impractical anyway. yeah so so maybe think of like all of these moments where we get to what was a personal special and important problem becomes a solved problem yeah. and a mechanistically mass-produced problem mm-hmm. maybe we all get to a prosper like a moment. commoditized yeah. problem yes yeah, so that's one of the other mantras of this podcast already is like three episodes we've, we've i've stated aviation is being commoditized i was gonna say i had approached it from the virtualized angle that that air crews a service Right, uh, flight controls as a service is really what you know. Automated flight controls really are correct. That's what uh, like Skyborg <laughs> and all those other things are coming on to do. Yeah. Right, they're trying to do you know control multiple airplanes with the same yeah. basic AI. Well, the mysticism of it is the 
mysticism or the illusion of mysticism. I maybe I should say, yeah, uh, the like the being broken is is being kind of like shattered. Yeah, and then it's and it's scary. And some people who have invested some of their identity in yeah. them being the 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 soul of this, yeah. you know, metal machine. Uh, metal death machine, you know, um, <laughs> is slowly being challenged and they're finding yeah. themselves slowly pushed out to uh, the uh, edges of yeah, the world, I guess. I don't know. I don't know where that was going. So, here, so here's, here's, a, here's, here's the real money question, or a money question for you, Mike. Um, can the Air Force get over this with respect to this technology? Um, and, and see past that, um, that level of identification, or, or is it already? Is it is it not a problem? Uh, what's the future of yeah. like the RPA and the MQ nine, like with respect to maybe this culture war, if we'll call it that? Yeah. So there's there's something interesting too. So the point of that research too, and we use the mile scale observations and do logit regressions on it, and whatever, was not to like just beat up on one or another community or I'll beat up on them. Sure. Uh, the the <laughs> point. I'm just kidding. Yeah. John, are you going to lay pipe? <laughs> hey, we already learned our lesson about that phrase. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, don't you want to know? <laughs> uh, so the, the, the point of this, though, is there was supposed to be some redemption in there, actually in part to help understand the why we're having this crisis in fighter retention. Uh, and said, so, look, maybe there's lots of variables people tell you about, family, deployments, um, but then there's these really fuzzy qualitative explanations they give that, and we see this, I worked um, back in 2017 to help set up a lot of data for the Air Crew Summit. Um, and what we're trying to understand was like, what was what's really driving it? And we said, you know, there's probably just no one smoking gun for retention problems. There's lots and lots of reasons as, as there are lots of people, um, but certainly there are some trends. And we said everything from schools being a problem in various areas where we're stationing people, uh, and it's an equation, right? It's if you have a mission that lets you work on a land range versus you have such an incredible radar package that you must be put on a sea range because you can't fly your thing anywhere else. So you're like a raptor, what have yeah. you. We're going to put you on the coast. Well, we put you on the coast. Guess what? School quality goes up. So parts of your combat command are in Maybe a good spot. school quality, like school for kids? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Not not access to ACSC no, 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 no. or, no. you know, like literally SD family ship, considerations. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And you may live in literally your places, right? So... Um, so we said we did everything. We tried to get across the board and we have this very holistic, very multivariate assessment, uh, knowing we, there was no one magic equation, but um, just to understand where where were all the things that maybe if we could, there's some levers we could move on. Um, and the, I think the chief and the, the senior staff uh, at the half level very much trying to get after each one of those. And they've made some progress. And then there's some others where they've been fought to a standstill from politics that are bigger than the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And it's, you can empathize that it's, there's no easy answer for them uh, for that. Uh, but definitely people trying. And at some point we had to stop calling it a crisis because if you press the crisis button forever, everyone just tunes it out, right? So uh, that even though your numbers haven't changed, you still have a problem, but you can't say crisis. You have to change your approach to how you discuss it. Yeah, for those of you listening, uh, Holman F-16 instructor manning right now is at like 50%. I didn't know it was it, quite that. It's, yeah. it's bad. Uh, yeah. the, I know the retention rate for, I it was just as measured by who took a bonus, assuming that means yeah. if you're taking it, you're staying. If you're not, you're not. 
uh, something in the range of like literally 29% this year. So the lowest we've historically ever had since we've had an ABP program. Yeah. It, it, it's crazy low. There, there is a problem. I don't, uh, I don't know how you solve it, but that's and part of the fuzzy part where I said, you know, there's just some writing on the wall. I tried to say this delicately with the chief and the, the geos in the room. And obviously at the time with some like ADBD captain, we're feeling like I'm in a giant room with, <laughs> like, I'm tiny behind this podium. What do I do? I'm going to stick to my script. Uh, so, uh, but what I was trying to politely get out there was, was that they, you, we said, I'm short 2000 fighter pass and I said, but you've increased your inventory of 18 X's or equivalents 2000. So it sure looks if I'm in, if I were to take the outsider, the congressional staffer look, I would just say, it's not like you're going through a transformation. You just don't like it. I said, that is one perspective. Now, it's not entirely fair to the Air Force because what happened? Their mission went up. They got told to do more missions. So they had all the things they had to pay for before, all the things they had fighter squadrons tasked against CEO plans forever, uh, and all this new stuff came up. And so they're trying to run two and a half Air Forces on 0.9 Air Forces worth of budget. Uh, this is not going to go well. So something has to give. And so what forces the budget choices are ultimately going to be from the COCOMs. Uh, and it's going to ultimately be from congressional influence. So there's, there's questions about how much autonomy does a service, any military service, in this case, the Air Force, have in its own destiny. And so what if you ask the headquarters Air Force, what do they want? Uh, it's please stop talking about repurposing your MQ-9 mm-hmm. for strategic competition. Please stop that. You're defying my congressional narrative. Uh, and sending out gag orders to Creech and whatever else. So, uh, and literally, I can't wait for someone in Congress to get their hands on that memo yeah. uh, and find out, like, wait, you literally, I mean, this is not surprising. The Air Force does this all the time, trying to get its story straight. But uh, this, this is just like the General Post stuff with the A-10 and the... Shockingly similar, yeah, 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 yeah. very parallel. Yeah. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's a, I don't know, an interesting... Uh, Watching when the, and there's a point which you can say, look, does the chief not have the right to look out the field, make the decisions he thinks are right to make? Because it's his responsibility to organize, train, and equip the air force. Yes. It's ultimately his air force in that regard. And yet, there, why in this is you go to Graham Allison's three models of understanding how decisions come out of bureaucracy, but but are there not people on the staff who say, ooh, I'm scared that maybe we haven't explained something right, and so we should put the brakes on something. But what is the principle? Like a chief, see that as, oh, the system's resisting me. I have to push back harder to make it go where I want it to go. And actually, there's scared elements in the system are saying, sir, I'm trying to save you from what I think might be a bad decision. I just don't think I've given you the explanation you deserve for why. And so had you been given all the information that I failed to give you, and I can't seem to find a way to get it to you, because uh, I get into me, bosses said, nope, nope, nope. And I'm like, ooh, but I'm scared. We have sold the chief yeah. out. Uh, but he made a decision. So you're left in these really, this is why bureaucracy yeah, is hard. Yeah, that's a, that's a humongous gray area, right? <laughs> right? So I've, you and I've had these conversations before and I always leave them thinking, okay, so where is the line yeah. between saluting smartly and doing, you know, yeah. serving? You have a responsibility and obligation or we have to be loyal to our superiors. Yes. There's something very serious about that. And where is the other side of the line where like yeah. at, at what point does it become insubordinate and what line yeah. of the line what what side of that line are yeah. we on? When when That's, is perceived insubordination actually right. the larger good and your duty? Right. Uh, without going off a of, you know, the Mitchell kind of insane, <laughs> you know, far <laughs> end of it because I would tell you, like... The Air Force loves Billy Mitchell now, uh, don't you know that? Right, in <laughs> retrospect, sort of. Uh, but, you know, Hap Arnold's memoir said, you know, he didn't think much productive came out of that. Um, but I will say this, that Hap Arnold may have 
discounted was uh, nothing made Hap look more reasonable than Billy Mitchell. <laughs> so he's infinitely more credible as a completely reasonable person yeah, yeah. Uh, who wants to talk about the same topics uh, because he's a lot better of a persuader. Um, so you you mentioned something very early in this discussion about networks and spread of ideas and what yeah. have you, and that's the innovation discussion at the heart of it. But um, that's what that stuck in the bureaucracy is. The assumption, maybe a way to say, how do you get this dilemma of when's, when am I being insubordinate versus when am I ultimately being loyal at risk to myself yeah. because I feel like a principal has not been given a sight picture that had they had that information, maybe they would still make the same decision, right. but at least they would have made it in good conscience. Right now, I feel like the system is stuck and we are maybe not giving that boss the perspective he deserves or she deserves. Yeah. Um, so where's that duty? It's this idea that the assumption of perfect information in a bureaucracy is a terrible assumption. Yeah. Oh, dude. <laughs> and that's dude, the every, problem every, you're trying to solve. Every time I go places, like, and I'm like, okay, so this is where all the adults are. That, like, understand everything that's going on. And then you're like, I wait. spent three weeks here. And you're like, wait a minute. Wait, this ain't the place. You guys don't know anything that's going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is amazing to watch a bureaucracy sort of just bumble around off these best guesses and imperfect. And sometimes it gets it right. And then you, like, dig into the mechanics of how we got it right on a particular point. And you're like, oh my God, that was a total accident. Yeah, like, luck. actually, better lucky than good. <laughs> you know, like, so, <laughs> that's, yeah. So, there's part of your, uh, the challenge of a bureaucracy is you're right. It's, it's solving the imperfect information problem, solving the coordination cost problem, yeah. solving, and on top of that, an equities problem where people have competing interests. You, where is your MQ9 paid for? Congress dumps money in these named core function accounts. So globally integrated ISR geezer pays for your plane, which brings you back to your chaos. Why did the A2 process not want to be treated like a weapons platform? Because they are J2 processed, whatever, because they are used to solving the problems that A2J2 solves. They're not interested in solving the rest of the kill chain because they are not awarded points for that. They are not told yeah. good job. They are maybe even like, ooh, I feel like I'm in someone else's lane. I make sure this is okay. It feels like I'm going to have to ask a favor if this is okay to do. And like, I don't want to spend social capital on your silly request, right? So the system has now incentivized them and set patterns of behavior. You want to know where tribalism comes from? It ain't just because people are rude to people they don't know as well. Like, it's actually because we've created structural incentives to get people to work across purposes with each other. Welcome to the, the fun of bureaucracy, right? So. Uh, yeah, I think that's your, maybe your, your almost in never, never solve possibly insurmountable challenge is to figure out what, what that is. So what does true loyalty look like? And maybe those are things that will solve the perfect information this way. The leader owes some expectations. Hey, you disagree with me. I love that. Here's how we're going to entertain those. If you have a reattack, here's the rules. People between me and people who have these ideas and want to counter it, a reattack. If you are saying no to reattack opportunities, you are going to summarize in writing for me why you turned off, and I can just read the quick summary at the end of the day or the week or whatever. That's a strategy. Like, there's you can have a thousand different ways, but like, how do you communicate that it's okay to have when you had an idea later and you're like, I don't think the chief knows this. I don't think the general knows this. Like, what do I do? Be explicit. Create those opportunities, and that might not solve everything, but maybe it that seems helps like you. it's so crucially dependent on whether the man with the hammer is like intellectually curious and honest yeah. and like confident to like be, to be able to take on those reattacks and not view it as like a threat and, and a, yeah. like an and opposing opinions and, you know, hold them loosely yep. and then, st yeah, yeah. And, and not take them personally, you know, yeah. and, and that requires 
ton of like intellectual yeah. and like political courage yeah. And, yeah. and maturity. So the the point I think what we were trying to you know I was trying to get the world a little better inside the yeah. Air Force on the research pieces was the thought was what if we kind of put this out and do it maybe do it in PME when people have some time to think uh, and reflect on these things and maybe do some samples when they're not at PME to see if they think <laughs> differently when they're like in their community versus like so maybe it is social yeah. pressures or whatever or changing their perspective well, my brain cell counts going down during PME uh, right just, just <laughs> so far you only went to SOS alright so like where do you see the other it's, <laughs> just, just, it's just the, just the start the lowest level alright yep. so thanks okay for the, thanks for the neg muff yeah. I appreciate that you're on your way to ACSC dog uh okay so the the thought then is what if we gave people this self-awareness to find those blind spots to find where they are actually way more invested than other people and they thought everyone else was just like them and uh, the mirror imaging bias is actually sort of shattered because they see ooh, interesting i'm a guy who turns off these these and these ideas and according to what my peers did versus me in the data like peers who grew up in the same community like they had a, they saw this plane differently than i did i didn't even realize i was doing this and the hope was that to build this out so leaders would be able to have some feedback and then be open to those ideas. Because you're right, there's when I we would see these ideas presented, like watch General Welsh, General Goldfein uh, get thrown a, sir, I have a spirit of threat. They're like, go ahead, right? Like, you couldn't threaten these people. Like, it didn't matter. They were not threatened by anybody's ideas. If they weren't sure about something, they're like, okay, let me ask some of my, my SMEs, right? Like, they, it would, there was exactly what you're looking for. I would think that, uh, hey, we're going to flip for this one. And I have four stars on my shoulders. So uh, whatever you have to say, go fuck yourself. Like, <laughs> uh, I think that's, that's what we're not looking yeah, for. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and that's that's the opposite reaction, though. You're, you're right, is the people who said, I made my decision, move out, whatever, yeah. uh, who were just shutting down conversation. Well, it would also be different. like, I'm not threatened. Like, I'm bring your ideas, dog. Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm open to yeah. anything and so, that you have to say because <laughs> I can't go any higher than where I am. So... No, I think no, I meant in terms of that you could present an idea and if you're at a point, they're like, ooh, that's interesting. And they lean over to somebody and be like, hey, Bob. Right? <laughs> and they'd have that conversation. Dude, be like, let's look into this and have the staff look that that's, up. Yeah, that's a huge thing. Like when you throw yeah. something in and you see them like lean off to the side and they're like, and that guy's like fiercely jotting down some stuff, you know, you know, something's going to happen. Yeah. Like that. Or, that's, or that's they know that moment. we think that and so they've created this little script for us to, so to bite out. It could be chaff and flare, right? <laughs> <Just like> <laughs> they're not really talking about anything they're just making you think they're really furiously writing notes but uh that's possible too we'll make this guy's fucking day he's a dumbass so yeah we're not really gonna do anything about that but make it look like we're writing that down it's possible you know i don't know uh questions of character that all that turns into but yeah so that i think that's your right that's your where are we a little bit stuck uh, where does this lead to the future? Um, this is that discussion I alluded to about technological constructivism. And that notion is to say it's the opposite of what scholars are called technological determinism. Determinists would say that there's some kind of like, like you're playing one of them strategy games or somebody had to write a tech tree for your civilization yeah. to possibly choose these research upgrades you put your chips down on or Age whatever. Age of Empires too. Uh, <laughs> I'm not really keeping up with these things, but sure. Um, so uh, that's what determinism would be. It says there's some path. And the closest anyone gets is um, this argument that said, the, you know, the, the steam mill follows the hand mill. Like you would have learned to mill grain by hand, realized you wish you could do it more efficiently, and then steam power hey, wait a minute, what if I put these together? But you wouldn't build a steam mill without having you figured out, you know, an agrarian civilization. That's, that was the argument. Um, and so that's about as close as anyone gets to a true determinist argument in serious academic writing. Most of the rest would say that um, 
the things that get built are a reflection of the political will of the people who choose to creatively act to build them. And so that was the point. And the, the reason we had those 44 option choices across 11 problem sets or whatever was it kind of showed you what the range of even just in the little tiny corner of how would you build tomorrow's air power in these 11 facets, how constructive is it is just the level of like different constructions people would build. I take one person's portfolio. We're still flying big Hava airplanes as our support vehicles. We are still using fighter aviation as our primary tactical stand-in weapons delivery platform. Uh, we are de-emphasizing standoff munitions, except for a short phase of the war. We are doing absolutely nothing um, at day minus 180 to you know the prep the battle spaces. I don't know what it is, but some magic that apparently happens, but I don't care. Uh, and you can see there's this very narrow view of we need to spend on the following. Um, and... And then you read somebody else's sheet and it's very different. And I'm like, ooh, this looks like a colonel from the intelligence community wrote this. This is very holistic. It's very analytical. The, the options that you put when you get the flavor of what kind of Air Force would this be? If we pick this Scantron of, of this bubble sheet, like what, read the description. What kind of Air Force do we have if I just read all their choices one after the other? And you're like, ooh, that's a different flavored Air Force. And so you realize all of these thinkers, you're right. And, and they get into these positions of influence, but they don't. And the point of bringing up, like, why is it that the, what happens in the Air Force isn't just what the chief says or, or what the vice says or whatever when they're sitting on the, the Joint Requirements Oversight Council or whatever. Um, what ends up happening is this odd blend of, of a bunch of pulling and hauling. This, uh, well, ACC did this thing, and that kind of committed us on this one project. So, well, since we're already there, I guess we'll do this other thing. And it sort of led us down a path which is actually different than what the chief said, but it kind of solves the problem. So it's okay. He's not super offended, maybe. Um, so how does this all end up happening? This is back to your social network. So imagine you draw the social network diagram of the whole Air Force, particularly the headquarters echelons. And you looked at these various things, and we're going to take uh, signatures from this little questionnaire where they did the uh, 11 questions. And they said, all right, we're going to group you by reuse clustering algorithms and put you in different groups. We're going to color code them, number code them, whatever. And we realize, wait a minute, ACC staff, except for one little corner, is dominated by like group six thinkers. They all fit in the group six profile of how they build an Air Force. Group six has disproportionate influence over Air Combat Command, yeah. notionally, right? And then you go to the half, and you're like, but group five thinkers are like dominating the A2 and a little part of the A3 and group one thinkers are dominating most of the five, eight and the nine is like in some other section, right? All together. And you're like, do these offices realize that they have clustered together in their thinkers? Like they do not have diverse thinking in the engine room at the A8 or at the AFWIC or whatever. And so as they look through all these functions, like the point was not just to give the individual feedback, but was to then give groups like directors of and branch chiefs and, and, uh, you know, vice chiefs and whatever, hey, in your corner of the Air Force, are you getting a holistic look or not? Because if the part of the Air Force that believes group, whatever Group 6 believes, and maybe that's a very traditional what things were in the 90s, they believe in a, in a renaissance of the 1990s style of Air Force. Let's suppose that's what Group 6 is. Of course they do. Right. <laughs> uh, if that were... Everybody loves the 90s, man. Yeah. Uh, things went great, right? Except for a bunch of stuff that didn't. <laughs> so uh, if, you, if you said that Group 6 is, is dominantly uh, exerting power over parts of, let's say, the keynodes in ACC and the half level, and uh, they've got a couple of players in the OSD level, guess what? That group is going to disproportionately steer the Air Force regardless of what the rest of the Air Force thinks. Have you read Tomorrow's Air Force? I did. I have some years ago. Right. So Colonel Smith makes the... 
the argument and uh, talked about it previously is that like his book tomorrow's air force talks about like it's it's like a subsequent yeah uh publication to uh, the rise of the fighter generals yep which is a hugely important book in the uh in the air force culture like it explains Provides how an explanation. We, yeah, it's, it's, it's an explanation, <laughs> yeah, right? For how this could um, have been. And Colonel Smith's premise is that literally the laser-guided bomb made fighter generals. Uh, because they're... And the force packaging, I think. Correct. Is, yeah, and, and their ability to deliver this weapon that bombers of the time were unable to do. Right? So bombing from 30,000 yeah. feet, 40,000 feet, you're not going to hit this bridge, put a you know, a paved yeah. penny on a, f- a fucking F-105 or an F-4 <laughs> and go blow this bridge up, right? Sure. And so slowly, like, the technology is yeah. li- the, steering the, the all the glory toward these guys, this particular yeah. subgroup, right? Um, at the end of his book, Tomorrow's Air Force, he talks about we're in a transition yeah. towards the RPA. The, the amount of, like, firepower and, like, the the... The yeah. centrality of the MQ-9 uh, and the MQ-1s and these RPAs in general. Yeah, I think he just called it UAV. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, but at the time UAV was the sure. the thing, right? Um, there, there's like there's almost like a technological determinism that's going on here. The the like technology we were... is going to drive the the like the long term destiny of the organization, right? And as we like, like I said, if, as as we have things like Death Claw, we have <laughs> automated aerial refueling. Yeah. The MQ9s uh, fielding ATLC. Numerous other platforms are like an yeah. A380 can land on its own sure. and zero zero. Right? It turns like, out we're just catching up to what airliners yeah, have done forever. Yeah, <laughs> we're commoditizing all of this stuff, and we're putting computers in the role of pilots in almost every situation, yeah. other than should I pull the trigger now or not? Yeah, as a, as a moral authority. Right? Correct. Right. So, in the end. The technology is just going to, like people will obviously see the obvious implications uh, of these things. See that they are they're better, they're more accurate, they're more consistent, they're more reliable. They are everything. Yeah. I don't need a dude in that seat. And so as less and less I need a dude in the seat, the dude who would have been in that seat loses influence and power and authority inside of the the larger bureaucratic system that may be one of those quasi like fuzzy variables that we had a hard time oh yeah qualifying, for sure. quantifying was uh if you if part of what you're feeling is uh and so take the fuzzy emotion part we realize that it's very hard to capture this and it's very hard to analyze it uh and the point is here not to tell people what we think they're feeling or whatever we're just yeah. taking our best intuition of what, what we're seeing uh i'm trying to empathize with so you have put your an enormous amount of blood, sweat, and tears. You've buried friends over perfecting this trade of tactical aviation. Yeah. Being inside the air vehicle. You've done a couple of things. You have an attachment to the, the problem that is solved by few. And it's an interesting problem that had not been mechanistically solved. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine how you are, you know, traditional pilot is in a pattern. You roll off the perch to try and get to that perfect short final picture and then yeah. a great landing, right? So you're managing two differential rate of motion problems. One is lateral and as you're watching the runway rotate towards you. 
as you turn, make around that turn and trying to like line that up, even though you're not there yet. So you can't just step left or right. You've got to anticipate where that's going to roll out. And you, you don't even, even with HUDs, you don't have instrumentation. You'd have to have a helmet system of something because you'd have to be looking over your shoulder. Right. Right. So that's one rate of motion. Unless and you've got the descent rate that the, you're, yeah, you got a shaft. the ILS breaks off the wall and you're like, all right, <laughs> cut my bank in half. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, like, that's why and people probably hate instrument flying by contrast to love contact flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you're doing an interesting mental problem and it's rewarding once you nail it. Like you get a little dopamine hit and it's very happy. Uh, and so you're, you're pleased with yourself and your performance. I love it when I roll out on final and like the crosshairs uh, of the GLS have just lined up perfectly. You're like Ding. nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Like, they, yeah, even, even lining the robot. That's funny that there's still a sense of, of, of a dopamine release or something like that that, that makes us uh, happy for just a little split second. So uh, you have this interesting set of problems, and that's just that was just the pattern. My goodness, let's go out to the area or, or let's go you know, out into actual combat and just think the massive range of problems that now some robots and forms of fashions are in, encroaching on your territory. And if your identity was tied to the dopamine hit, you now have a problem. So, so your novel problem is being solved just as the chess problem was being mechanistically solved and it's less, less interesting. So there's something about the job that was supposed to be cool that you feel like the problem might be becoming less interesting. That could be one of the variables. Uh, you notice that that's what we saw as consistent feedback was, well, I kind of want to talk about the PC problem. And they definitely did not mean personal computer. They meant political correctness, right? Uh, so I guess they had a PC problem and a PC problem uh, <laughs> in that case. said robots encroaching. Steve Jobs also had a PC problem. Uh, he did. Uh, so, so you're you're watching. It's pancreatic cancer, John. Oh, man, that's dark. Uh, so, so you're, you're uh, anyway, uh, for, as we've now orbited in a lot of interesting territory. So imagine as you've now, the, the, this would come PC up in the feedback. Again. Uh, they would talk about, yeah, the, the political correctness problem and essentially that the things that made the culture of a fighter squadron great, they believed were all under attack and that um, Americans they defended no longer valued it. Mm-hmm. That was essentially when you read the written feedback, you'd see these kinds of phrases yep. periodically throughout it. Some of them were legitimate work complaints, like we were understaffed on support. And so they said, where all the support go? Being a fighter pilot ain't that cool anymore. Uh, it doesn't get you. Well, it's yeah. interesting. It's, yeah, Dell Screen Girls have a song about that. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and it turns out the MK9 people nearly started World War Three after all, which I did not expect. <laughs> Dude, I was on the floor for that night, oh, like me and Wario Adams, if yep. you have met him. Uh, absolutely. And, I, he used woo! to be one of my students. That was... Uh, we're talking about the night that a uh, bunch of MQ9 started shooting a bunch of Russian contractors. Uh, uh just across that the was river. The first time we nearly started Holy World War III. <laughs> Nikes, like, dude, that whole place was lit up and like ready to go to real war uh, uh, at that point. Yeah. Uh, okay. Dude, yeah. you watch a video and there's like dudes slinging off the tops of tanks as the weapons are impacting and stuff. It was brutal. Okay. It was gnarly. Yeah, this, is, <laughs> yeah. this was a. This was uh, early 2018. Yeah. This you were still the, at the 20th. The James Mattis tells, him, tells you to light him up. I was the. Egg- the oh, okay. LNO with the AOC oh. on the floor watching the shit go down. Doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, doing nothing. But doing nothing, but, but, but watching the show with popcorn, no doubt. Uh, yeah, was, there's a tense, scary, obviously, international relations, political moments. I but. mean, like, I thought I thought you were talking about your, your DO deployment, but it was, that was the no, LNO this thing. The previous oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is how a major gets anywhere at the 20th is to just deploy because just GSUs are a bad idea. Uh, there's that. Uh, then future podcast. Thank you. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, 
Okay, so so think about all of the, if you feel like the the that hard to define substantive value of what makes you stop drinking you. then, Moff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you think that that is all starting to get hollowed out, you may feel like the things that attracted you to the job are might be there, but they're not what you thought or whatever. Right? Like you'd have to ask each individual what they think. But yeah, that's my guess is that somewhere in there. Uh, the attraction has sort of worn out. And so maybe part of this is the writing is on the wall that it's, and it's not just that it's RPA thing. It's that RPA and operational cyber, that was another identity based response curve that came out of the study was that if uh, they were super identified with the fire community, then when the options for how to use cyber, they loved it as a tactical sweetener. So the more identified they were, they, they tended to gravitate toward, Oh yeah, do that. Help me with the IADs. That sounds great. Right. Cause it supports them. Yeah. But when it said one of the options like C was use cyber at the direct operational to delete the need to launch a sortie. Ooh. So that's what it was. You can put yeah, the picture yeah. together is yeah. between RPA, cyber, and you pick space-based effects. There was another set of discussions on that was the fact that the pointy end of the spear was no longer the spear. It was the Air Force wasn't a spear analogy anymore. It was now some weird, I don't even know what multi-pronged nunchuck thingy, right? But there were yeah. lots of ways. There were many branches of combat arms they had to figure out how to work together. They were not just them. Right. And it was yeah. no longer going to be a monarchical, like one, one community dictates that it was gone. Uh, and if, if you didn't want to believe that it was gone, you knew it was at least highly threatened and you weren't sure you're going to win. And so when you watch that translate back into what policies does headquarters air force come up with? Yeah. You'll watch some people have a vision for that renaissance of the 1990s. They obviously want the equipment new. They want the tech updated, but they want all the things that they didn't grow up with to be enhancers for the primary way they would like to do business. Yeah. That's the vibe they give off. Yeah. What their private behind doors and various classified forwards. I don't know. Right. I'm not sitting there having those discussions. Maybe they have very different ones. We should leave some room open to think that, but what they say, at least in front of Congress is <laughs> very much a picture. We need to get back to this. We need to get back to this. Yeah. And even within that, general scope of arguments, there's uh, not agreement on how to go forward. And that disagreement, do we go to more mass with an F-15 EX purchase and, mm -hmm. and do something there? Do we uh, go to, uh, nope, nope, don't do that. Just spend it all on the F-35. Um, there's this back and forth tension of what is the right mix, the right, what's the right concept of employment? And I think what they're realizing is there's no one great winning concept of employment that is so easy to convince everyone on that that's what we should do. And so now if you're thinking about this, if you're a senior Air Force leader, you've been left in a very difficult position where no one mix of these choices in all these scenarios looks particularly great. And then I have to question like Future Games 2040 was one of the war games they play, which sort of unbelievably preposterous to try to forecast out to 2040. But sure, right? What's interesting about those I learned from a colleague was who used to be an engineer for the Air Force. And he said, there, he's like, I, now that I saw it at the headquarters level, I'm watching them. I said, well, what capabilities are in your simulation that you stipulate you would have in this time frame? I'm like, oh, this thing the Air Force Research Lab said we're going to have. And he was like mortified immediately because he said, do you know where those come from? And they're like, the research lab. It's on the cutting edge. I know it's like low TRL now, but, but these are going to be here because we asked for what will we have in 2040. And this was the research lab's answer. And he said, those are created by lieutenants <laughs> who are dreaming up what could be without a whole lot of fact to back them up. And so 
He said, I used to be one of those lieutenants. I made these things. Uh, and I'm telling you right now, you, you don't want uh, you know, any of these things to be your, your going in assumptions. This might be true, yeah. but it really, really might not be true. So, so his entire discussion uh, was just this moment of horror trying to like, get them to understand how, how risky even the assumptions by which they even sat down to try and do a simulation they couldn't even get their arms around the assumptions because the assumptions would be so radically different from what might actually play out. Yeah. Um, and the other things I've watched them do too that are frustrating are uh, they think they understand a strategy, but then they do it wrong. And they're like, oh, that strategy didn't work. I'm moving on. So strategies we suggested were, what if you create multiple parallel dilemmas? So they tried it and it didn't work, right? Or whatever. Like, but the way they did it was garbage. It was not an actual, they didn't really do the strategy because the enemy wasn't really felt like he had any dilemmas right so yeah. like so you didn't do the, the parallel dilemma strategy you just said you did it you convinced yourself you did it and said oh it didn't work I'm moving so on so you could select against it which is kind of right. kind of what he wanted to do anyway. yeah I didn't yeah. really like that one anyway so whatever because parallel dilemma strategy said you should do things like what deterrence by detection tells you you should be thinking a lot about day minus 180 hoping that day zero is pushed in the calendar right further and further until you do something like collapse the enemy's economy and use other instruments of power Everyone, I think, wants to plan for, and they feel compelled to plan for the day zero to day 421. And that's, that's about as far out as anyone's going to be willing to think about. And we're like, well, what about day minus 180 and plus 180? A noble. There's a... <laughs> uh, uh, like Fever's article. I was talking a lot about uh, like plus 180. Yeah. Like that kind of like what using, do you do? using the MQ9 yeah. in that zero day zero plus... Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. So, like, Fever's discussion is the plus one eighty. What like, do you do whoa, for sustain? We're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about like not the O plan, but like after the, the use plan? of the MQ9 and like all of this stuff prior yeah. to the O plan. And okay. Yeah. We so, have, okay, that makes <laughs> sense. It's just like yeah, there's yeah. time marches on. Like there's not there's a time yeah. before and there's time after, yeah. infinite time before and after. But well, not too, too. relatively, but far yeah. relatively. So, uh, yeah, you're right, though, that, that you need to think about the time horizons left and right of boom. And the minus 180, that's where you think about CSBA's deterrence by detection. Those are good articles to talk about that. Um, when you think of those other, you know, in, in-house written papers, they talk about day plus 180. What do you do to sustain really day plus 25 and beyond? Um, it's also unfortunate, too, you watch the Institutional Air Force go in front of Congress, go in front of the media, tweet on a you know, comics account or whatever, and try to paint this picture of... The nine's unsurvivable, but the F-15EX is perfectly survivable. And we're like, well, but how is the F-15EX delivered? It's really an F-15SA or QA or whatever the Qatari one or Qatari one or however you want to pronounce that. Uh, you, were, you were there. <laughs> so. Qatar is the appropriate way to pronounce <laughs> okay. it. The F-15SA for Saudi Arabia, yeah. right? That's a Saudi Arabian airplane. Yeah. So the I think the, the Q, QA is probably the one that I think this, the X was built out of. Is there a QA? Uh, I, don't I don't know. But whichever. It was yeah. one of the Gulf State purchasers. Uh, and this general golfing said it in the but these, uh, uh, gen 4.5 guys. Yeah. And that's the thought, right? And the problem is that they said, look, I got it for this price and it's going to be survivable. Except it came without all the stuff. <laughs> so like, Oh, by the way, Congress, I have this supplementary bill now, now that we have them, we can't not use them. Right. So it's a total sneaking your way in. Yeah. Uh, and it's not like Congress doesn't see it coming a mile away. So, <laughs> so their argument is, well, this is survival. And that's not like, well, if I bought the same gear, I could actually equip all of these hundred MQ nines to do the exact same thing. And now I'd have persistence and survivability. Now what? And I'd actually present a wider gamut of, of problem solving for the enemy to have to contend with, which might get us toward parallel dilemmas for real. Eh, 
I don't want to hear about parallel dilemmas, they say. I just want to buy, I want to restore my 1990s picture. And not necessarily because it's an emotional attachment. It may literally be you're under pressure. You're making hard decisions. There, none of this, you're like, holy crap, the fate of the free world in some literal way, not an over-dramatized one. Like I literally, there are consequences and I could do my best and fail. And like, what are my grandkids living in because of my failure to figure out the right answer back in the 2020s? Oops, right? Like there's this kind of a, a no take back. So, so that pressure may make you f- go to something familiar. Yeah, so this might be a good question to end on, but uh, to, to wrap it up here, I guess. But do you think that the, these, these guys who are anchored to the, the 90s, as, as you mentioned, yeah. um, and who favor that model or just like maintaining the core structure of that model and using the new toys to support that? Yeah. Um, do you think they, they're going to, do you think they're going to force it to where we're going to learn that it has to change from someone else? Or do you think we can internally get there, uh, just by the momentum of the technology as you were talking about? Uh, so I think I didn't phrase that super artfully, but, um, like, do you think we can get past that? like uh that vanguard kind of holding that that model close to their hearts at the top right some now. of it is going to be or are we going to learn a lesson a hard way because of too much of that it's i mean those are hard to tell because you have to actually know the timeline that plays out and when sure. yeah when do you i'm, I'm asking you to be irresponsible yeah your right. conjecture, so. <laughs> uh, perfect perfect straight on the internet it's fine um okay so so what we don't know is when when would the transformation occur inside the air force and then the second variable is like, what was the cause of the transformation? And if the transformation is late to the real world circumstance, then that's the, you get to the hard lesson and your two by two grid of sure. outcomes. Uh, uh, if you if you get to a transformation before, maybe that's just the luck of timing that international politics didn't crush you and you had some time to think. Um, scholars who are writing about the habits of how China behaves strategically in particular would tell you that when China feels like its windows of opportunity are closing, it gets scared and it lashes out. And so you should expect conflict as early as 2025. Oh, that's enlightening, right? Like, so we may actually be out of time at this point. Um, some of 2025, the, the year that China says they're going to invade Taiwan. I, I don't know. They, the thought was that, uh, I think the, 2030s when someone's like well this is my earliest if something goes bad it's the early 2030s and these scholars are saying you should probably move that left about five years because here's where their economics are starting to become less of a a you know an asset more of a liability yeah here's where their neighbors are starting to all turn and start to arm up more heavily so starting to figure out that china's not that awesome yeah and the belt and road thing turns out when people realize you're a scoundrel they don't (laughs) trust you anymore and they will take your money and then not do what you asked them to do or whatever and that's super annoying like what i paid you right so (laughs) um so okay so here we are trying to figure out here's what may happen you may simply run out of, of fighter generals because you ran out of fighter pilots yeah, I was thinking that's where one of the things that you were talking about or kind of hinting at before with the retention problems yeah. and the cultural, like the big cultural, like that it relies on the sustenance of the yeah. the honor and the glory of that to sustain that model. Yeah, Even if I don't um, worry about the qualitative aspects, like let's say I can't measure any of that stuff and I say, look, all I know, I just be a numbers guy. Now think about something like systems dynamics, like the the simplest systems dynamic problem being like the, the sink and the, uh, faucet in the drain 
Yeah. And if the faucet rate exceeds the drain rate, eventually this sink fills up. But if the other way, then it never does. Uh, but the rate at which one's ahead of the other might tell you which way the, how, the speed at which the sink fills up at a given moment in time in a simulation. So then the complex ones where there's all these feedback loops, these, this is like more like society where there's all kinds of effect causing all kinds of other effects, and it's a mess. So uh, if you imagine that way, like imagine the social system that gets somebody to a retention or a separation decision. Is, and it seems to be giving us, even if we don't fully understand the machine, I don't know all the steps, I know the number keeps dropping and keeps dropping and keeps dropping, and there's no incipient big change in circumstances uh, we know production is more challenged than we advertise. Uh, we know that uh, the level of uh, retention goes down consistently. And we know that the morale and the encouragement when you're at 50% manning or what have you, and you maybe you're going to take a budget cut on production, um, you know, all of these things that go on probably would tell us, I, if I know nothing, I guess the model trends down. But what's interesting about this is I think we are past an equilibrium set point in that system. And it's, mm. it's hard to prove. Like I don't have, yeah. the, you need the full model, but, yeah. but my gut is telling me that system model, whatever it is, even though we only have partial glimpses at it is already past a set point where it, it's reached negative instability. Yeah. So yeah. the only equilibrium it can recover is a far, far smaller sized force than it has ever known. Yeah. Um, probably well, really in its entire history. Like there's not a, there's not even an historical and analog. And it may be that, think about if you are buying this very, very high-end fifth, sixth generation equipment, like maybe you do have a smaller workforce and it kind of makes sense. The problem then is the, the piece where you get to on the social, the honor, the glory, the who is the right to run this institution and what is their power and who's the face of it. Look out of this value. If you ask the average person who lives in, in Otero County, what's Holloman all about? Oh, those F-16s I see flying all day. Oh, hell yeah. I get, and, <laughs> when, I, dude, when I walk in the gas station, my grocery store, or sorry, the when I walk in the gas station near that, my house, yeah. the, the, uh, people will just come up to me and be like, oh, you're going to fly the Vipers today? And I'm like, uh, no, nope. actually. <laughs> sure don't. They're, like, they're, they're so excited to talk to me about it. So, I mean, yeah, if, but, if you go to Starbucks, like, yeah. there's already F-16s all over the wall yeah. and stuff. I'm like, fuck those guys. They didn't show <laughs> up until like 2016. Uh, like, when they were 13, <laughs> there was a contingent out here from, from Luke. But. Yeah, it's like, the MQ9s yeah. are pumping out four times as many students as yeah, these even if, even if you divide here, right? it by two, right, to account for sensor operators, it's yeah. it's a five to one production change. But really, each community has its own needs because we have a different contract than they have. They have tenure contracts. We've got guys with six year yeah. contracts. And, and, but we've there, there's there's lots of storytelling there. Yeah. And like, but the part no one wants to acknowledge or like realize is like if you go back and look at the headquarters, big numbers. Like, okay, of people with these core core IDs, 18s and 11Us and whatever, like the, the RPA folks versus, it is now the largest workforce in the CAF. Oh yeah, by a long shot too. Uh, yes. You gotta put like, like 16s <laughs> and 17s together to get MQ9s. Uh, yeah, so like that's the, the closest you're gonna get. And I think the MQ9s are still are, slightly greater than yeah. the, the two communities combined, Yeah. right? Uh, like we're enormous. Okay. It's, yeah. So here's, here's the reality is that that workforce has shifted dramatically and now the question was okay well how are you going to get more reuse and leverage out of your existing workforce how are you going to bring that workforce up to a level and i think this gets us to the point and this is when we've been having these discussions with the leadership out here holloman was and i asked a lot of people from the ground up i said um tell me if i was joe neighbor i don't know much about the military so just forcing people to come up with a plain english explanation so tell me what an, you said something about an 18x rp about what, what is that what does that mean 
is that like a, it's like a, some kind of pilot. I, I got that part, but like, well, but then what? And as I asked them to explain it, like all of their explanations consistently are things that it's like pilot, but so they had to define themselves as the difference from the 11 of the traditional air force pilot model. And I'm like, well, so, and then they realized, well, we did the same thing institutionally inside the air force. We told the general, like, well, what's your thing? You go around the room, everybody, what's your thing, right? Well, you guys, what's your thing? Well, we're good enough and faster and cheaper production. They're like, great, can do more of that. And so we get all of a sudden, we're like, you're cutting my, my training time. You, what I'm like, I'm pressing the button to make you do the thing you just told me you do. You said faster, cheaper. So I cut it, right? And you still keep going and it's magic. I love it, right? So, uh, you know, meanwhile, you present like <laughs> the most amount of like flight time and weapons delivered and all this other fun right. stuff and the lowest maintenance incidence rates yep. and the highest mission capability rates. Yep. The, like... east, the most amenability to the agile common employment or ACE model yeah. of anything in the fleet, the yeah. almost likely to survive when I can have four people in a dinghy as their escape vehicle uh, yeah. <laughs> to get the plane off the ground and, and, and leave right yeah. in their dinghy if it gets missled. Uh, actually, I don't need 70 people on an island or whatever. So Right, um, right. All, all of this in 90 training days. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. So, so the interesting thing is uh, what the RPA community had not done to this point was define a distinct value proposition that said, what are you? What is your thing? What do you people do here? Uh, and the argument, and I've gone around touring various parts of the enterprise outside of MQ-9 uh, recently. And so the interesting picture of this was, I think what's going on is whether we like it or realized it was happening or not, we're, and there's probably some more elegant way to phrase it we should think about and maybe have a, I don't know, hold a naming contest, see if people come up with a better way to say this. But I think their 18s are turning into the tactical multi-domain operator. The only person who can sit across effects. Is this the... Uh... Uh, what was it Ped's thing? Uh, the multi-domain warfare operator. Yeah, the... So that thirteen Oscar thing. That's yes. like that's like at the chaos yes. level. Yeah. So yeah. this is like, but at the tactical level, like who actually integrates? How do you do that? Well, you'd physically have to pull yourself out of band. Oh wait, that's what we do. Right. And fine. All right. If you don't want to go from inductive of like things that we already do, like start from scratch. Let's do a let's do another approach. Let's say what's the irreducible architecture of this weapon system that we've talked about architectures. So it has an air vehicle and it's a real airplane and real airspace that can really run into people if you're not careful and it can really actually kill people it means to kill if it drops things and does it right so um, some amount of training in aviation uh, right <laughs> yeah. so so you're inevitably stuck with airmanship no matter what you do you must master airmanship because you are responsible for the consequences in the end line that and that checks with the notion of war as a conversation you are you are talking through your robot possibly to someone else's robot they may be sitting in the robot or they may also be remote, but like you and the other human are the ones who are actually fighting right now. Yeah. The robots aren't actually fighting. You humans are arguing right. over whatever the policy problem is. Um, okay. So, uh, got it. So you have airmanship. Here's the second thing we're discovering. We are sticking our heads in the sand if we think that you can just play in the atmosphere and pretend space isn't much of a thing. And I don't mean on, oh, I make sure I have my, my KU satellite, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. who else can see you in your mission area right now? Can I go on the internet and buy coverage of this? So this notion of Satran data, like the, the satellite reconnaissance advance notice, we don't think much about it, but other people do, really importantly. And at some point, those are things we probably need to teach everyone in the community to understand, like you have to look at air and space as a continuous medium, because it turns out if you look outside, that's how it really works. Right, <laughs> like, right. The atmosphere does not care about a disconnect. Orbital mechanics and our conceptual ideas about teaching aero versus astro classes, like those have started giving us like there's a hard line, 
But it turns out when capabilities get mixed back together, it's all very contiguous. Right. But you just have to make distinctions about what am I calling for for who, who do I talk to, what are their what capabilities can they present versus what do I need to do in the air. So air and space is at least one leg of this triad, I would argue. The other one, unless you intend to put a long string on this thing, is that there's going to be EM spectrum involved consistently, yeah, right? Uh, and whether that's threat detection, threat management, uh, a, you know, geolocation of threats, or uh, geolocation of actors of interest, or you name it, no matter what you do, or remote controlling, you know, wireless C2, fly by wireless, whatever you're doing, um, there is some sense in which the EM spectrum is always with you. Yep. As an 18, you cannot afford to not understand that thing. Yeah, there, there's, yes. you, you, that's the only way to be remote is yes. to, to go across <laughs> yes. the EM spectrum. So yes. you must It's that or a cable, man, this. which is still the EM spectrum. It's but just dude, inside we, the copper, right? That's but, one of the things we do not we, teach. Yep. Like, or we had some initial stuff at, at Randolph, but we never pulled the thread. I was right. talking to look at today, and he said, yeah, we never pulled that thread all the way through to application. You didn't make anyone do anything. Like nobody, I don't care if you had an RCS model for a nine or for a, <laughs> a Cessna 172, just to show them it's not a perfect circle. Did you play with their sweet A10 sim? Like, uh, was oh, I remember that. It was thing. bizarre. I'm like, what are we doing, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so they were trying, but they had no con. They just, Air Force told them to go make something, so they tried. Yeah, no T6 uh, sims, so none, none of that uh, stuff Nope. <laughs> so yeah. so they, they came up with whatever they could come up with in the time they had available. So I get it. But uh, we needed to have a continuous you know, piece go all the way through. Your third leg of the triad, unless you plan on going analog, which we could still discuss some interesting ideas on that, is you are going to have what the military would call cyber. We would think of as IT security, really, in a lot of other venues. But um, yep. yeah, but everyone says cyber, we know what they mean. Like, uh, I got it. So that range of concerns that is about the exploitation of flaws in any digital system or architecture. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, I was teaching a gaining handover or handover sortie today. And how many F-16 pilots like have to configure a satellite to like go fly their plane? Right. I mean, not that we mm -hmm. configure, we match the satellite, right? but sure. like, right. fly our plane, we're like punching in, like we're having to talk about geostationary and inclined orbit satellites and matching settings and doing things yeah. like that, like, which I think is exactly to your point, yeah. like to fly our plane, it's multi-domain, like inherently. Yeah, inherently like, multi-domain. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. So, cool question for you, John. Um, what does type one encryption mean to you? No, 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 no. And, and this is my point. Like, I don't, my anticipation is that you wouldn't know the specifics of what it means for type one encryption, yeah. right? That, um, I mean, that got in, in deployed and at some point we're like, oh, there it is. And nobody said correct. what it was. Right? Correct. It because this, this community yeah. doesn't do a good job of like communicating like what that is because it, it's fundamental to what we do. Like to the point where like we cannot fly a block five airplane without it. Like there's, yeah. Right. I was gonna say it's the encryption that I need in a Block Five aircraft. That's correct. That's what I know. Yeah, that's and correct. I don't know what the settings are. But Type One yeah. is just a blanket term for yeah, whatever certification. Yeah. you know NIST and you know you know guys up at, at the government level like they can change the algorithm of the encryption underneath it or all the time. Standards. And yeah, really, all it really means at this point is like AES, which is Advanced Encryption uh, System. Standard, I think. Standard, yeah. yeah. Uh, Two fifty six. 256 bits to make yeah. the key, right? Which is hard to break, and it takes it's going to take our enemies a long time to do. And it, and these are the types of things that dudes in our community, and she dudes or she bros, whatever you want, <laughs> um, they, they oh, need man. to like have some just a baseline understanding of what all this shit is, 
but they don't because most of the people in the community up until now do not have that baseline. Yeah. Well, they only even start learning about it when they're like when they're an op soup at their op squadron mm-hmm. and they have to suddenly you know, patch an aircraft to a new GCS for a new AOR. Then they have, mm-hmm. and basically what they end up doing is they go running to the CTI guys, or not CTI, but the URS guys or whatever mm-hmm. contractors we have that deal with the networks and all the stuff. Yeah. Help like, me, nerd guy. And then help you, me. <laughs> well, then you, and then you, then you yeah. figure out which one of them of the ten of them actually knows their job, and then you, and then <laughs> you, you have go, to do something non-standard. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then you, and then you go to them and you're like, grab them by the knees, much like you're grabbing, you know the wise philosopher Plato or everything like teach me everything yeah. and then they teach you and then you're like okay I kind of like know enough to be dangerous yeah. now even if you're not here Amanda yeah. Yeah. shout out to Amanda Kovacs <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah so you're absolutely right like yeah. the 18 is is like the future multi-domain warfare officer he has to understand yeah. these things at the tactical level yeah. rather than where 13 Oscar seems to be an operational level kayaki kind of approach which could be a follow on assignment that could be very popular yeah if we've gotten this down Ted um, tried to push me to that like a couple of years ago, and I was yeah. like, and Steve yeah. Pine was like, you're on a good track here in the 18 community, like, stay. And I was yeah. like, eh, all right. Well, it's, I don't think that, that, that experiment uh, is ill-placed. Yeah, that, I don't think that uh, group has quite figured themselves out either. Yeah. Probably. I'm going to have to agree with you, Mo. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's shout out to Steve. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is kind of the, the picture then is like using the oh, he's out. <laughs> yeah. Using the cross domain piece. Uh, how many people have actually had to adjust satellite transponders and get space guys to switch you to another one yeah. with a different footprint in order to exclude a region of known interference or known hijacking or known whatever. And they're like, Oh, I'll take this one. Cause this goes outside this coastline good luck getting on my stuff now, right? Like how many people are that cognizant of like multi-footprint choices to integrate with Space Force guys to do that? Well, how many people have even looked at sat beams to see what the footprint right. of a satellite even looks like? Yeah, and, right? <laughs> and then my, yeah, exactly. Like, so the, that's your own CT satellite. We haven't even gotten other blue satellites. Like, well, why don't you get SARSAT help with that? Because this is a mountainy area and your SARS kind of line of sight. Mm-hmm. So you're like having to fly twice and fly both sides of this just to get a look. Why don't you just ask for a SARSAT and see if there's anything available? But then you'd have to understand remote sensing, swath with revisit rates, all that kind of stuff. We would have to teach that too. Uh, but you can imagine the the person who's mastered this cross skill set and is plugged in with whether it's NRO or whoever these days is the, the belly button to you know task these imaging collecting op- you know opportunities does these things together. You can imagine like how terrifying, like how capable of a of a warfighter this is. Mm-hmm. But here's where this all builds to. I think is stop competing with the fighter guys. You're not here to try and replicate them. That was fine when you were like fi- equivalently like the, what a five-year-old is in the yeah. military, right? Yeah, yeah. But when you grow up and you realize like, why was I picking fights with people? This is dumb, right? Like you start to realize like- I was so like, angsty. Yeah, yeah. I was, why was I so mad? I was, I'm sorry, I was figuring myself out. I didn't mean to be mean, right? So, but the growing up, I think for this community is realizing like, when you realize, like, stop pushing, don't be ashamed of the remoteness, don't be ashamed of the nerdliness, embrace your inner remote nerd, right? And realize, like, do you have any idea how unbelievably powerful of a battlefield asset you become when you do that? That's, I think, the picture where this grows to. And it sounds like there's a major, like, rebranding, like, to, to emphasize that and, yeah. and to make the mm-hmm. FTU and, yeah. and, and the whole training pipeline to really educate everybody in that. So yeah. that we're we're truly multi-domain, and that's how we understand ourselves, rather than yeah. shit pilot on a budget. 
right? Well, like, and this is, is exactly like, where you know, I or I'd not as a, not as good, not as good, not real pilot, yeah. kind of pseudo pilot. I'd had a one quick hallway conversation with General Wells at Nineteenth, and he said, "I said, have you heard uh, anyone give you a compelling narrative about RPA training?" He said, "No," and he didn't want to discredit staff. He understands they're working hard, but he just hadn't heard the thing that clicked yet, and so that is a vision that people even at the two-star level are waiting to hear. Uh, and this kind of question in between here is what are the O6s between groups and wings and right. And at the staff going to do Yeah. when we say we're pushing a bottom up vision, we think we know what the 18 X was supposed to be all along. We're just figuring it out now. Sorry, we like the party, but better late than never. Here it is. This is the vision we want to pitch. Do we get filtered out of the middle where the thing that, Maybe General Wills listens to this. Maybe he hates it. And he's like, no, nah, I don't think that's the one. Like, keep, keep trying, guys. Or I mean, he's like, I've been waiting for... Why didn't you just say that the first time? Now I get it. Now I understand why you sent people to, to Pueblo, which was honestly a mystery. And I'm like, because I need them to understand spatial reasoning tasks. I need them to understand the visceral feel of a stall close to the ground. I go, ah, uh, right? Uh-huh. And I need them to have that memory burned in their minds so that when they see a robot go, stall, like, you get an enemy, like, oh, shit, I need to do something kind of reaction you mean like when they we crashed that one for lack of understanding the <laughs> p factor uh, uh yeah you want to relax max roll it turns out now <laughs> yeah to, you yeah you don't want to just throw the throttle <laughs> the forward when I you're stalled yeah good idea yeah exactly my own pitch over gets some speed and then smoothly yeah there you go but it sounds like right like not only do they need to go to like well say Pueblo or get some sort of airmanship yep but like they everybody understand. needs to go to echo essentially or like get something like that i think what echo is now will be seen as the common knowledge kindergarten level that basic students have in the future yeah 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 but like the real echoes of that era are unbelievably more advanced yeah we got yeah yeah but like like the the pipeline is like Mm -hmm. you get your airmanship bucket you get your echo bucket right and those are all like separate phases instead of just or i think they're interleaved like you keep revisiting the three three or four major themes yeah that keep recurring over and over and each stage we build your understanding a little more and it's interleaved all the way through. Um, but it's not just fly remote. It's we're tra- right. we're training you. It is to be the people in who all this multi domain yeah, stuff. Exactly. Be the people who stood at this weird nexus between worlds and then realized it wasn't a place to be like trying to alibi for. It was a place to be leveraged and used. As a uh, graduate of the Echo course, like that is immensely useful yeah. when you understand uh, the architecture and how things work and you realize yeah. that like when you it's you the one mute. That I want that, like, that I would want to That's like the one call that I would want to go get at some point. Dude, you'll get it. Yeah. You'll get it. If you want it, tell tell your commander. They'll put you in the bucket and you'll go. Right. Um, and it, it will unlock a lot of like understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, just, I, I mean, I, even if it's down to the level, of just understanding that the guy that you call Bob at yeah. the fist, he's <laughs> like, he's li- when he mutes you, he's literally just unplugging. You know, a Cat Five cable out of yeah. a fucking rack, like a little <laughs> plug out of your computer. Yeah, that's it. You know what I mean? And it, and it, it will remove so much of like the mystery about what's going on, yeah. and and you can really start thinking about the problem sets and like moving past that and becoming competent yeah. in the the, whole, the the totality of the system that you are actually in command of. You can probably think through something like whether it's Bloom's taxonomy of learning or something else, but like something that tells you like what level of master do you have? Yeah. The understanding piece is one. And then I think the application part that then makes tactical decisions based on that systems knowledge is probably your, your next level. 
up. And that's the point where you realize something and you choose not to do signal excision because you don't want to show a card right now. And you made a very interesting value decision. And then you thought back to the air piece and said, well, because the vehicle is going to make it to here. And then I'm just going to do a transponder switch. It's going to pick it up on this time. And I don't have to show my hand. I can do this other trick. Yeah, yeah. And this is way better. Yeah. So thinking through those and understanding how to be a tactical employer of the of the equipment i think at that level of crossing those domains and then the big one would be understanding how do you build an ad hoc stand one of these things up from scratch like i got five scrap pieces me in an island and these dudes make one of these things happen yeah i don't have the big uh infrastructure how do i make a rapid ad hoc infrastructure that's as agile as the planes and the deployment footprint are right that is a level of mastery we don't have right now. Uh, there's a couple of us. Uh, right. Like we don't have it in mass. Like have we can't mass the, manufacture. Correct. Correct. Yeah. There's a couple of us that have the requisite backgrounds. Yeah. You could be the, the A-team to, to do, do these things. things. Right. Right. But, I won't say who. Sure. Um, <laughs> but, that, but we're out it's here. We're out here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's a question for you, Mike. Do you sure. still wear the flight suit? I do. You do. John, you wear the flight suit, right? Yes, I do not wear the uniform of oppression. So I purposely, I have not worn a flight suit since 2017. Oh, interesting. I've worn the, uh, the Army Air or? Combat uniform, right? The A2CU. Yeah. Um, and part of that, as we alluded to earlier, is that we have to stop like identifying ourselves with fighter pilots and things like that. Yeah. I... Purposely, sure they, they see the flight suit as cultural appropriation or something, right? To, to, yeah, yeah. If, if you want to make <laughs> it make it simple, right? Um, yeah. I do not wear it because I have nothing to prove. Oh, that's an interesting take. Yeah. I am a I am a different thing than Bad you. Take. You can call me an operator. I don't care. It doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. because what's happening is that this will subsume all of the things that you are doing over there in your flight suits. Yeah, there's. I mean, I've got that same because of that systems dynamics approach where my yeah. my gut, short of empirics, says almost certainly the fighter enterprise is dying. And literally, even if we absolutely said, "Oh crap, mm-hmm. I am not okay with that," because I don't, I think we're at serious risk. We're not ready. Like, even if there were some transition in the future, like this is terrible timing. Like, I literally think we have no more control over that than Correct. any of the Air Force brass, than literally perhaps even the community itself. Um, I literally, I think the train that train has run away off the tracks. Yeah, uh, and I don't, I don't know what to do about it. And it's not my place to do anything. They have to make their own decisions. I think they've sort of chosen the door in the largest, fa- you know, yeah. form of fashion. Um, the other thing too is think about where your recruitment pool. As people start to realize, like, wait a minute, there's a certain mystique of being at this domain between the worlds. Yeah. and this this realization that somebody like literally outsmarted our enemies in ways that today like this will ultimately literally end up saving those very same fighter pilots lives yeah uh let's say that the russian ad hoc right they're the big fat support ucav type design yeah let's suppose hypothetically we were cyber smart enough we were actually in their ofp when it was in flight and we've tried to figure out like a good cyber operator like how do you get effects without burning your cards because you do something big like dude they're like up oh, we're compromised something's clearly or it just Massive failure, it's got to go back to the drawing board, something, right? They're going to detect and they're going to look real carefully in that code and they're going to find out how you're exploiting it. But if you're real subtle, like, like induce a... level, so, like Stuxnet subtle? Like, <laughs> like I'm going to induce a target track error of 0.1 degrees per second. Gotcha. And by the time you realize that four degrees off after the time of cycle engagement, like cycle time for engagement for weapons release, and 
they, by the time it was you know, four degrees off at 155 miles, wait a minute, 60 to one. Oh yeah. And that missile got nowhere near that. Right. Like a whole barrage of missiles completely missed an F-35 formation, never even got into a window to lock on. And they, it looks reasonable that it was just an honest systems glitch. Right. And those 35 guys are like, wow, I did see a bunch of missiles fly, but like that was the worst targeted solution ever. Like, are we, was it just that good? And like, well, I mean, your platform's capabilities are helping you, but you were actually compromised at that point, we found out. And yeah. so we fixed it. We fixed the glitch, Bob, right? <laughs> it's like, wait, what? And they realized like, no, a dude who's actually not even that forward in the battle, but his robots are linking him into that battle through the cyber knowledge. Like you just became a hell of a war hero. Like you saved four dudes' lives right there, right? Yeah. Uh, why? Because you subtly like move the enemy's hand in ways the enemy does not understand what happened. Right. You and have outsmarted. It, 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 it almost looks like magic, right? Yes. It right. is true. Like sorcery on the battlefield. That's what an 18X really should be. Right. And that point, you are not a competitor with a fighter pilot. You are a unique, distinct combat arms yeah. contributor that then leaves us in this very interesting position of, is anyone like, are we done with everybody yelling at everybody? Uh, are we done with all the hurt feelings reports? Right. Are we down to the, what is going to be effective to protect American foreign policy? And that's the only reason any of us are here are getting paid. And this is why I don't wear a flight suit. Okay. If, uh, if the non-wearing of flight suits it does it for you, it, fantastic. It, yeah, it's, it's, Everything's a potential <laughs> message. Pick your message. It started right? as a comfort thing. I didn't have to like take my arms out of my suit to take a poop. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And it started there and uh, I could take my top off, cool down a little bit. And then it was just, yeah. then it slowly grew into this. Like, yeah, the old school BDU. You could subtle take the top political off statement. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it became this like minor political yeah. statement and, uh, and an acknowledgement that I have nothing to prove. I guess you could make the opposite argument with wearing it because you, you were claiming equivalency of airmanship. Yeah, you could. Absolutely. Uh, it's so uh, some of these signals become ambiguous because they don't know which one you met. <laughs> yeah, the wear or the non wear is a are thing. You pro or, or non? You just, like... Did you just grab the first thing in your closet? Like, I literally don't even know right now. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. As a, I, I wear it honestly because it's just a habit pattern thing, probably. Yeah. Because yeah. I wore it before, I kept wearing it. I didn't really see a reason to change. Yeah. yeah. Also, I only just recently got the little two piece one, so I don't even yeah. know. Gotcha. Well, Mike's on team flight suit, and that's good enough for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dude, this like honestly, this has been a serious powerhouse of a cool man. of a, a Lost Lake podcast. Um, I did not anticipate it going uh, three ish hours now. Uh, just shy of that. This is Joe Rogan level <laughs> podcast, <laughs> right? So, um, uh, Mike, I wish you weren't PCS in here real soon. You're yeah. off to uh, Edwards, Edwards mm-hmm. uh, the CMCC Green Door thing. Uh, just hanging out with the DT folks. Just. Looking at projects. Okay. Awesome. Um, I take that as I can't talk too much about where I'm going or what I'm doing, um, which is perfect. I'm, I'm going to the Mojave, which is uh, which is basically not that unlike this place, except less mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why are all the RPA stuff things like in Desert the smooth. middle of fucking nowhere? Yeah, this one's probably uh, the best one because it uh, gives you a real mountain. I guess Creech gives you a real mountain nearby. Yeah. Uh, Edwards gives you some... High hills that are pretending to be mountains. <laughs> the high desert. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Went from, yeah, it was only 2,000 or something. A lot of like there. Joshua yeah. trees. It's and, uh, yeah, it's exactly what it is. Know. It's all over the place. Don't ride any horses, I hear. If you, if you do that, you're going to run into somebody. You're going to run into these uh, Joshua trees if you've ever seen the right stuff. But, oh, uh, interesting. <laughs> I'd forgotten completely about that scene, but okay. <laughs> Good scene. <laughs> yeah. Good scene. Yeah, yeah you got a stick of Beeman's? Uh, how about a, you know, soft a handle on a on a broom or whatever to lock down the door. All right. Uh, Mike, it's disappointing that you're leaving. I'm yeah, glad yeah. you're going to wherever you're going. Um, 
I think that's the end of this podcast, man. What do you think, Yogi? See ya. (laughs) Peace. Don't know where, don't know where.